Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is the first part in a two-part solo series, sort of short series, on the ethics of voting. Specifically, it's my take on and my analysis of the debate that we have in left-wing circles pretty much every presidential election, about whether or not people whose own values and ideology and policy commitments are significantly to the left of mainstream politicians, whether people like us should be voting in elections where neither party represents our values fully. I will say just before we get started, once again my apologies for the somewhat lighter release schedule. As long-term listeners will know, um, in terms of my personal life, I've uh, been going through some big changes. I've just completed a move back to the UK, and I'm getting set up on this side of the Atlantic now. I'm still, as you'll see with this, very interested in American politics. I just sent in my ballot for the presidential election, which I suppose gives away at the outset uh, which side of this debate I ultimately land on. Um, But I think I've generally figured with this show that it's best to put out content that I'm confident in and that I stand behind rather than trying to um, arbitrarily crank out a certain number of episodes. And what I will mention, for those of you who sponsor the show financially, is the way that setup is sponsorship works on a per-episode basis. So, if I only put out one episode in a month, which I think I did last month, apologies for that, then you only get charged for that. So... Um, it's not as if you're paying for me to do nothing. So I think, you know, I um, only get sponsorship to the um, extent that I put out content. So I think that works quite nicely. So you can, even if I'm putting out slightly lighter episode releases, you know, you, you don't need to make any changes to your sponsorship because of that. And just on that note, of course, big, big thank you to everyone who does sponsor the podcast. You're making the sort of in-depth, engaged conversations we have here, possible to go out to tens of thousands of people for free and advertisement-free. So I really appreciate everyone who does that, and if you would like to sponsor the show, you can check out our Patreon page, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. So Even though I have been a bit busy personally, this was an episode that I sort of already knew all of the arguments I wanted to cover and what I wanted to say. These are debates I've been engaged in really on and off for the last 10 years. Um, Both on the podcast, actually, I've referenced these debates. And, you know, I have worked in local and state politics in America for a while, and these are issues that come up again and again and again. So, in that way, it was a little bit like the episode I did on race and the 2020 primary, in that I sort of 
knew all of what I wanted to say, and I knew that that would be quite an extensive analysis, but I was also a little bit nervous about putting it out there. The reasons for my trepidation were a little bit different. With the episode on race in the Democratic primary, my trepidation came from, you know, not wanting to sort of overstep the mark as a straight white guy commenting on the politics of how black people vote, and a little bit of nervousness about that. With this, my nervousness is twofold. One, it's that this topic has already been debated to death, and I sort of wondered, is there going to be much added value in me giving my two cents? And eventually I just sort of decided that I think there is, and I think I'm sort of not happy with the sorts of analysis that goes on with this topic from both sides, frankly, and I wanted to put out a positive statement of my own and what I think about this. And then the second reason I was a little bit cautious is this is a topic on which passions run high, and I think people feel like they don't just have disagreements about what's going on or disagreements about correct strategy. Um, This is a debate in which people feel under attack personally, and generally when I do analysis or commentary, I try not to make it like that. I try not to make it something that someone's going to leave feeling insulted or offended by. I can I can occasionally be a bit snarky on Twitter. I think that's kind of what Twitter's for, almost. But when I do these sorts of long-form episodes, I try to take things carefully. I try to consider the arguments as they come up. I try not to strawman anybody. I try to look at it from... A, a range of perspectives and be respectful to people with whom I disagree, particularly fellow people on the left with whom I disagree. And I think in this debate, people don't feel respected, frankly. Um, you, you hear it all the time saying, I don't want to be vote shamed, I don't want to be yelled at for not voting. And I hope at a minimum, what you'll find in my analysis isn't that. I'm not trying, certainly, to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad. This is intended as a discussion amongst allies. And so I've tried to put together something here that won't come across that way. I certainly do give my point of view, but I have tried to give it in a certain sort of um, tone and way of engaging. On the other hand, however, I think sometimes the standard can be set too high, and people say, I need to be positively inspired to vote, I need to be, like, really enthused about it. And if that's your expectation, I'm probably not going to be able to deliver on that either. I personally am not very inspired by a lot of the stuff that's going on in contemporary American politics. I do not feel um, a a sense of um, great optimism. I don't think anyone's ever accused my analysis of being optimistic. So if you're hoping for something that you'll listen to and just want to go storm the barricades, this probably isn't going to be that either. What I have for you is analysis. No more, no less. And I've split it into two parts because I realised how much there really is to say here, 
and what seems like one simple question is actually a sort of bunch of questions that overlap with each other, and it's easy to mash into each other. Um, And I'm going to give you the current state of my thinking on those questions. And as with anything I say, and I think anything anybody says on political analysis, basically everything I say here, every sentence should be followed by awaiting contrary evidence or argument. I'm not saying this is definitively right. I'm saying this is the best I can do with what I know at the moment. And the the, the other reason I've split it into two, um, aside from it just ending up quite long, is I think there's two separate sets of issues that are at stake with this question of whether lefties should vote. One is to do with institutions, and the other is to do with identities. So this part, first part, will be to do with institutions. It will be to do with questions about the Democratic and the Republican Party. Are they really that different? Are Democrats really sincere in what they communicate to us? What's the best way to push the political party to the left? Um, More than that, what are the sort of structures and trends and forces within American institutions that uh, forestall progressive change, that's one set of debates that I think um, always end up getting referenced on this question of whether lefties should vote. And I sort of wanted to take care of them first, because in many ways these are sort of factual claims about the world, and I bring a variety of facts and empirical research, particularly international comparisons, as well as just my own personal experience having worked in progressive politics for a while, to sort of go through step by step what I think it's reasonable for us to say and conclude about the institutional side of this argument. The second side of the argument is about identity. It's about how we relate to those institutions, how we see ourselves, and how we try to signal our values to others, and that's going to be the second part. But I think that you have to deal with the institutional side first before you can go to the identity side. This first part is quite long, I don't think the second part will be as long, but I think it makes sense both in terms of the length of the content and in terms of sort of um, the types of arguments that I want to cover to get a break in there. So anyway, this is me giving you an analysis of all of the different sorts of arguments that get made. And as we'll see, there's actually quite a lot of different arguments that get made about whether strongly left-wing people should vote, I mean specifically in the upcoming presidential election between um, Biden and Trump. And I just sort of felt the need to like whether or not people end up agreeing with me. It did seem like the right time to do this. So this is the first part where I'm going to look at institutions. And in the second part, I'm going to follow it up with arguments, uh, with the various arguments people make about identities. So let's get straight to it. This is quite a long episode. As always, I really appreciate everyone who listens to this show, and I really welcome feedback. Um, I do try to go through 
all of the sort of main arguments here, but I'm sure there's going to be people who think I'm missing something. So please email me or comment on social media or any of that stuff. So, with that as a bit of a long preamble to a bit of a long episode, let's get right into this. This is 2020 and the ethics of voting. strongly left-wing in their personal politics, much more left-wing, say, than either of the main political parties in the States, should they nonetheless vote for Democrats because Republicans are the greater evil? Now, it's a simple question, but it's one that has spilled rivers of ink and countless millions probably at this point of angry comments on social media. Now, despite all of that, when I go over these arguments, and I don't mean to sound whatever about it, I'm generally not that impressed with them. One of which, one reason for that is I think, you know, there are limits to to how well you can get into complicated issues in a Twitter thread or something like that. Another is these arguments have become very acrimonious. I think there's a quite high level of mutual distrust between left-wing people who think you should vote and left-wing people who think you shouldn't. So just off the bat... Those are two things which aren't going to make for a very constructive discourse. I actually think there's another reason, though, and that's sort of what I really want to get into in this episode, which is I think it feels like we're debating one thing, but actually we're debating several different things at the same time. And I think that's the reason why people often talk past each other, often don't understand each other, and often, frankly, get really angry with each other and assume bad intention. And I think what can often happen is something I sort of think of in my head as argument jumping or argument skipping. So when you're discussing several different related but distinct issues, one thing that can happen is you're arguing about point A and then Instead of sort of following that argument to its conclusion, you jump over and you start debating about point B. Now, I think it's much easier to see people pulling this move when it's done by people you disagree with, when it's done by an ideological opponent. You can see it much more clearly. So I'll give you an example from the political right. And I've talked about this before. I think libertarians do this all the time. So let's consider two ways you could justify a sort of free market, economically conservative libertarianism. One way is you could say free markets produce the best results, they generate the most wealth, they create the highest uh, welfare for um, all the people living under them. Another way is you could say, as Nozak does, 
any interference with the economy, with people's property rights, with free exchanges, necessarily violates their rights. Now, these are two different claims. You have a claim about efficacy, about what works, and you have a claim about some sort of like intrinsic justice, about what the state is and isn't allowed to do to people, right? One could be true and not the other, right? Now, I think what libertarians do is they jump. And I'm not sure they're always aware that they're doing it. In fact, I think a lot of times they're not. But libertarians will come in and say, the state does not have the right to tax my money, even for good purposes. And I might say back to that, well, okay, but property rights aren't the only game in town when it comes to rights claims, I would say. People have a right to life. I would, I would argue that healthcare is a right, and I'll try. I can defend that claim. And I would argue that there's lots of different rights people have in society. And sure, property rights are one of them, but they're not the be-all and end-all. And do we really have to insist on property rights being absolute when it might lead to people being quite seriously denied their rights in other areas? To which the libertarian says, "Yeah, but that doesn't work." Government welfare actually just makes the poor poorer. Now, notice what's just happened there. Whether or not the libertarian's right or wrong about either of those claims, he hasn't really answered my rebuttal, right? They've made a claim about rights. I've tried to counter that claim about rights. And then they've jumped over to a claim about welfare. Now, say I follow them over to the claim about welfare, and I say, actually, there's a lot of good evidence that welfare programs do indeed raise welfare, and that countries with advanced safety nets do a better job, not a perfect job, but a better job of minimizing suffering at the bottom of society. And then the libertarian goes, ah, but who are you to say, you know? It's not your money to spend. People can do it voluntarily, but you can't just come in and steal people's money and give it to these welfare programs. So now they've jumped back again from the wealth, from the sort of consequentialist claims back to the rights claims. And without, you know, getting into it of who's right, the sort of welfare state advocate or the libertarian free market advocate, you can see how that debate is never... You're never going to reach a conclusion there. You're never going to get to the point where it's settled. I think a similar thing happens with these debates about um, whether or not leftists should vote. I think both sides can be guilty of this to a degree. Um, but I think what often happens is, is not just two sets of claims. I think there's like four or five sets of issues that are at stake here. And the, the, when I either engage in myself or I watch other people sort of having these discussions in, in real time, what I see is a similar process of cycling through arguments rather than sticking with a specific claim and following that line of argumentation to its conclusion. So what I want to try and do in this episode is to show you that, to firstly to try and convince you that that is what's happening here, and then secondly, to just go through one by one and try and offer an analysis as best I can of who I think is making the better points in each of the quite separate arguments 
that often get run together in this discourse. Because I think in some areas, there is a sort of complicated and interesting to de debate to be had. And then I think in other arguments, it's just much more black and white. It's, it's an open and shut case, like one side is just correct and the other isn't. Um, and I mean that in a respectful way. Um, I'm not saying people are morons or you're evil or whatever. I'm just saying sometimes there, there are just factual errors to be pointed out. And I think it's more respectful to just say that, frankly, that, yeah, hey, this doesn't hold water. and. Again, because what we've done in this debate is we've sort of mashed together a number of arguments, is people end up defending principles that I think at some level they know aren't correct because they're attached to other tracks of the argument. They'll defend point B, even though they, they must know that point B is wrong, because they're re what they're really committed to is point A. So, let me concretize that a bit. Here's, I think, the various tracks of argument that we have. And I think, like I say, they kind of get meshed together, almost a little bit like a Venn diagram. Um, but in principle, we can pursue them separately. I think, firstly, you have broadly consequentialist arguments about the utility of voting. So, specifically in this case, are the two main political parties in the US really that different? Um, even if Democrats are different on paper, can we really trust them to um, sort of pursue reform in actuality? Do they really believe it? That's sort of one set of consequentialist arguments. Uh, the next set of arguments is about efficacy for long-run change. So in other words, if we want to pull the Democratic Party further to the left, is withholding our votes from them, is that going to be the, the, the tactic we want to use? Some people would say it's the only tactic that will work in order to do that. Now, those are sort of two consequentialist arguments we pursue. Um, beneath all of those, I think there's a series of discourses and debates about some structures and forces that go on within American politics, namely the issue of money in politics, who are our politicians really responsive to, issues of the relative merits of a two-party system versus a multi-party system, and finally issues of how our government is structured, what our constitutional order is, and what our norms are. So to recap, I think there's a couple of sort of consequentialist arguments about uh, what are the differences between the parties. I think there's a sort of strategic stroke consequentialist argument about how, what the most effective way is to pull the Democratic Party to the left. And then again, sort of like a Venn diagram, sort of overlapping with those issues. There's these debates we have about money and politics about maybe trying to move towards a multi-party system, and about structural reforms. And those can all get meshed together, but I actually am going to argue that those, that's actually not really the main thing that we're debating. Those are all issues that get tracked in. 
but actually where the, the, the heat, the passion to this debate comes from is a series of um, much more philosophical debates about the nature of voting itself. What is it that we're doing when we cast a vote? And I want to try and tease something out here, which is not just statements we make about voting and what we think we're doing when we vote, but how we approach it, how we think about it to begin with. And I'm going to get to that and end with that, because I think there's something quite subtle to be teased out there that's often missed, and the conversation will be guaranteed to derail if it is missed. And actually, I think that's sort of the heart of the case here. But let's rewind. I want to start with the consequentialist stuff, because in many ways, this is the easiest to analyse. You know, what it is we're doing when we're voting, should we think about it as functional or symbolic, should we think about it as an individual choice or a collective choice? Those are quite hard questions to answer. And I think there's better and worse answers, and I'm going to give you my view. But in some ways, like, uh, measuring the, the gap between the parties is comparatively straightforward. There are, I mean, it's, it is complicated, but it is in principle an empirical question. So I want to start with that, because one of the first things you tend to get in this debate is the idea that there are not meaningful differences between the two main political parties in America. And I think this is something that intelligent, well-meaning people can slip into saying because they're committed to other argumentative tracks that I'll get to later that are often bundled together with a scepticism that there are meaningful differences between Republicans and Democrats. But with that sort of preamble in mind about argument jumping, I think it makes sense to just look at this issue just on its own and not jump. Because often when I start to say, but there's obviously differences between Republicans and Democrats, people then jump and say, but can we pull the party to the left by continuing to vote for them, or we need a multi-party system, or so on and so forth, right? You, do, do you see the move I'm doing? If, if you say there's no significant differences, and I provide you with differences, let's just stick with that argument, as opposed to jumping and bringing other stuff in. We'll get to that other stuff. But staying with it, um, I mean, yes, obviously, um, the, the two parties are miles apart on the acceptability of regulating corporations, they're miles apart on provision of healthcare, they're miles apart on abortion, they're miles apart on gay rights, um, they're miles apart on the environment. I mean, I think fairly uniquely for even a conservative party, I don't, I can't really think of conservative parties in Europe that just deny global warming, that that that, that that sort of conspiracy thinking, essentially, is simply part of their platform. So I'll give you just one specific example of this that pertains to the 2020 uh, presidential election. And this is kind of my go-to 
uh, because it's not constrained by, say, who wins the Senate or anything like that. This is something where there will be a noticeable difference, um, it, whether it's Trump or Biden, and that is the repeal of DACA. So um, for those of you who don't know this, President Obama put in place a policy which said if you came into this country without proper documentation, um, but as a child, if you were brought here as a child, um, we, will gr we will give you certain protections from deportation and will allow you to sort of work and live openly. And I think about 800,000 people have claimed that status. It's, in my view, a very, very good policy. I think, I mean, my general view is that I'm just, when people talk about amnesty for illegals, I'm just not that scared by providing pathways to sort of entry into the country for people who may have made a mistake in how they came here. I think there's all sorts of reasons why people come and you know, that they did it without the right visa or something doesn't mean that they can't be a productive member of society. And that these, these are people with rights and dignity of, of their own to consider as well. But I think it's particularly obvious, and the vast majority of Americans agree with this, by the way, that for people who, who came into the country as children, you know, you can't even put fault on them. Um, so I think that really DACA is an unmitigated good. My only criticism of it would be that it doesn't go far enough. And actually, to Obama's credit, they, I won't go through all the details, but they did try for a much more expansive policy, but the Supreme Court struck down big sections of it, um, and DACA was what remained. Um, so for people who say Democrats don't go too don't go far enough. I mean, I agree in a lot of cases, but actually in this case, they did try for something much more expansive, and this is sort of what survived judicial challenges. But nonetheless, um, 800,000 young people's lives have been significantly improved, and I think the country is much better off for them being able to fully participate and have sort of on-the-record jobs. I think it's just an obvious good thing, right? Trump has spent most of his presidency trying to undo that. And indeed, really, the only reason he hasn't been able to is incompetence on his part. Like, without going through the legal history, he got into trouble with the Supreme Court. I mean, with the bloody Administrative Procedures Act, which is a whole other story, but essentially what it boils down to is they just didn't fill in their paperwork right. Um, no one really doubts that the president has the power to um, make these sort of executive decisions about immigration, but they were just so sloppy in how they did it. Now, um, they're going to try again with their paperwork done correctly this time, and there's a very high chance, like I would say, at least 80% that DACA will be repealed if Trump is re-elected. And the only reason I give it 20%, is maybe there might be some sort of deal that could be made with the Democrats, but Trump just isn't very good at that and hasn't showed an aptitude for sort of bipartisan deal-making, or that their continued incompetence just gets in the way of it. But I don't think we can count on either of those things. I think it is very likely that should Trump be re-elected, 800,000 young people will lose their jobs and be at risk of deportation. That will not happen under a Biden presidency. Absolutely 
100%. That will not happen. Um, and I, I said this to someone, and they were like, oh, but do you really trust him to, to follow through? And I'm like, in general, or on this specific issue? Because on this specific issue, <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely, there is no way in hell <laughs> that Biden is going to proactively undo one of the signature accomplishments of Obama, who he's tied himself to. He has tied himself to the mast of the Obama ship, right? Um, that no, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, no member of the Democratic Congressional Caucus wants, and in fact I think many on the Republican Caucus don't want, um, he will simply have the Justice Department, or whoever it is, drop the lawsuit seeking to have DACA overturned. He will not pursue a DACA. He, 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 he will allow the existing policy to continue. Absolutely, 100%, I will bet you any amount of money that a Biden presidency will not repeal DACA, right? So you have a very, very clear choice. And often in American politics, there's a few if, ands, maybes in there, like it depends who has the Senate, it depends if they can put together a coalition, it depends if it can... It, none of that's relevant here. This is a very immediate difference to 800,000 people's lives that is almost certain to go one way or the other, depending on the election. And this isn't just... You know, this is real, right? Like, this isn't just an academic game or a debating point. Um... I know people, I have friends in New York who fall into this category, and it has been incredibly difficult for them. These are you know, people who work for charities, for city government and so on, to suddenly have their entire future thrown into question because of the Trump presidency. And it's been very, very difficult for them. And difficult for them to a lot of them have, have sort of said how upsetting it was to realise how much of the country just really, really hates them and wants to destroy their lives. Really no other reason than than what. We could be polite and maybe call it a sort of form of nationalism. It's just, it's just racism, isn't it? Let's, let's be real. Um, now, even if that was the only difference between what we could expect out of those two presidencies, two potential presidencies. And on every other issue, they were exactly the same. That, to my mind, is significant enough to warrant a vote by itself. That's a difference that matters. Now, that's not the only difference. I could spend the rest of this episode doing a dozen other ones. Like, the, the, the outcomes we are going to get, depending on who wins, are just very different. And not in some abstract sense or big political game sense. Real, actual, physical suffering for hundreds of thousands of people hangs on this. And, you know, that one instance is perhaps anecdotal. It's, it's a pretty darn big anecdote. But you can you can see this actually in the political science literature. There's a lot of studies that get done trying to like 
do like a political spectrum of parties internationally. So, like, um, it it often gets asserted that um, our Democrats in America are like the equivalent of um, a, a conservative party in Europe. And actually, when they try to like use empirics to like measure this, um, actually, that's not right. Um, there's various ways of doing this, but most models that I've seen suggest that the Democratic Party is somewhere in the middle of the pack when it comes to, like, its position on a left-wing right spectrum relative to other sort of big left-wing political parties. So, for instance, I'll just do it to the UK. I would say, obviously, the Democrats are not as left-wing as, say, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. But I would say on a lot of issues, immigration, crime, uh, stuff like that, um, they're, they're probably to the left of something like Tony Blair's Labour Party, right? And, and that's sort of how it appears. Um, the Democrats are sort of middle of the left when it comes to international comparisons. And the Republicans are way out to the right. They're much more right-wing than, say, the British Conservatives or the French Conservatives or the um, German Conservatives, say. You know, the, the parties that they're much more analogous to in terms of both their stated positions and the policies they take when in office are much more akin to something like the National Front or the BNP or, like, far-right parties. And that sort of metric holds up uh, in a number of different measures. So it holds up with respect to sort of, like, cultural conservatism versus cultural liberalism. It holds up with regards to the sort of economic left and the economic right. You know, the, the, the Democrats are sort of middle of the pack when it comes to their position on economic issues. Uh, Republicans are way out to the right. I don't think most, you know, most mainstream conservative parties in Europe don't have this absolute dogmatic libertarianism at their heart. There are certainly libertarian strains within the parties, but the idea that, that any sort of government regulation is sort of intrinsically impermissible, that's sort of quite a unique feature of the, the Republican Party. And finally, um, attitudes towards democracy and democratic governance, um, the, um, the, the willingness of political parties to cheat in elections, essentially, to, to undermine economic, to, to undermine democratic norms, stuff like that. Um, on that one, the Republicans and the Democrats are just on completely different ends of the spectrum. So, like, you know, according to all of the empirical data we have, it's, it's not only that the, the, the Republicans and Democrats aren't identical, it's they are further apart than the main two parties in any other two-party system. They're probably further apart than, like, the leading parties in most multi-party systems, right? And it's actually, it's so bizarre that we have this, this discourse about how Republicans and Democrats are the same. It's such 
an American-centric way of looking at things. It's so like, you know, we, we criticise the political right correctly when they say stuff like the government can't provide everyone with health care and still deliver good health care because it just shows a, a total ignorance of, like, the, the governance of most other countries in the world. Like, most, I mean, they do it in different ways, but most other countries in the world, you know, if you're even remotely familiar with something like the NHS, then that analysis just doesn't hold up. You can only hold to that while having a very sort of blinkered view where you see America and only America. And a lot of the stuff the political right says is like that. But on this one, aren't, aren't we on the left doing the same thing? Like, it's actually really unusual for the two main political parties to be as far apart. It's really, really atypical in terms of international comparisons. Um, the norm is in two-party systems that the, the, the two parties sort of pitch themselves to the median voter. Um, and it, it sort of goes through periods. But um, think about the, the politics of the UK when I was growing up. So I was born, I guess I was born just at the tail end of the Conservative government, but under Major, who was uh, John Major, who was nowhere near, I think, as ideological as Margaret Thatcher. And then, of course, when I was about, what, nine, something like that, um, Blair gets elected. And Blair gets elected by being a sort of very uh, centrist alternative. And the, the Tories, the Conservatives, they don't revert back to a sort of hardline Thatcherism. They, I think, throughout the Blair years, increasingly accept many of the things that happened under that Blair government. And especially when you get someone like David Cameron, who I think rhetorically at least very much signalled... Um, I mean, he called himself a liberal conservative, and he was very much into, like, a, a sort of more expansive social policy, very much into the environment. I mean, we can maybe debate how sincere that was. But in other words, the substantive policy differences between Labour and the Tories through that period were not huge. I mean, they were there. But, for instance, they both had exactly the same policy on abortion. They, they were both broadly pro-choice parties. Um, I think Michael Howard, one of the leaders of the Conservative Party, got into trouble for suggesting that maybe we could um, um, make the, the deadline for getting an abortion two weeks earlier. And there was such a backlash to that that he had to walk it back. Um, both of them quite openly accepted the sort of mixed economy Big role for private sector, but also, you know, government comes in and helps people out on the margins. That was fairly uncontested. A lot of specific policies were uncontested. Stuff like gay marriage was not significantly contested between the parties. Um, now, lest that all sound like a much more liberal country, um, the fact that we need to be harsher on immigrants was fairly uncontested between the parties. Um, the, the fact that we need to do a whole load of stuff which, to my mind, kind of just looked like harassing young poor people, particularly non-white young poor people in the name of being tough on crime, that was fairly uncontested between the parties. There were differences, but even with the differences, you had to struggle 
attitudes towards Europe, that is going to blow up later. But in terms of their, their platforms, you know, it wasn't huge. They really, they, they were similar-ish. Now, of course, we know in retrospect there were all sorts of cultural currents and discontents and um, nationalisms bubbling under the surface of that. As I always say, overlapping consensuses do exist, but they're never stable or permanent. But that's actually more the norm. Like, you've got, if you've got two big parties, they'll both sort of go for the median voter, and you'll end up with a sort of rush to the centre in your national politics. That's the norm. The American experience, at least in the last 20, 30 years or so, You know, you get a bit further back to the 60s or something, you can probably start to debate this a bit. But the the American experience in my lifetime has been unusual in how much it isn't that, you know? So, I really, it just doesn't hold up, this idea that both parties are the same. I mean, maybe they're not the same in that, like, neither are, like, overt communists or something. And if you're, like, truly, truly hard left, and you see it as the only distinction that matters is being communist or capitalist, then, like, yeah, maybe you can say they're the same. But by that logic, you have to say all political parties in the world across the entire spectrum are the same, which, like, you know, you can say that, but... I'm, not, I'm just not sure how useful that analysis is, quite frankly. And I think even a, most communists would have enough reflection to say, you know, I don't like anyone who isn't a communist, but there are meaningful differences between non-communists. Now, I sort of spent a bit of time drilling that one in, right? Um, because what normally happens there is people jump. They'll sort of jump to another set of arguments. And I'm going to get to those set of arguments in a second. But I did sort of want to just run through that line of argumentation, because I would make that claim quite strongly. As we start separating out the different arguments that I think get bundled together in that question, some of them there is a fairly black and white answer to. And I think for that first one, there is, and I can already hear, because I discuss this online a lot, I've discussed it in person a whole load, I can already hear people saying, what about X, what about Y, what about Z? And I think once we get to Y and Z, there are some legitimate points there and stuff that does need to be engaged. But I just want to, like, close off that line of argumentation. I want you to just see that goes nowhere, and that if your case relies on that line of argumentation then that's a problem for your case. Um, And that basically that whatever case you're trying to construct has to be done independently of that. Now, the the next jump people will make is it's quite a, a lateral jump. It's a jump to quite a similar sort of line of arguments. Is people will say, and you get this when you point out um all of the reasonably good stuff that's in Biden's platform is, you know, that he actually has quite a good environmental policy in there, for instance. He has a very good policy on unions, actually, in there. His people will say, yeah, but I don't trust him to 
deliver it. And the idea would be something like, Biden has adopted certain policies to sort of appease the Sanders wing, um, but this is completely insincere, and in its core, in terms of what he actually believes, he is a neoliberal who wants to give more power to the powerful. He has a class interest that is opposed to the workers, um, and that he sort of masks it in a different rhetoric. And if you were to compare, I can hear the counter-argument being like, sure, if you compare the policies on paper, they're quite different. But in terms of what people actually do, it's all just the same. Now, I already gave you the example of DACA of a substantive issue that is not just the same. But let's take on this idea that Democrats don't really mean it, and that even when they run on economically egalitarian messages and substantive platforms, um, in their heart of hearts, they believe a completely different ideology. Um, Firstly, I'd say it's really difficult to know someone else's mind. This is sort of more an epistemic point. I just want to make it quickly. Um, But, you know, I've had close friendships in my life where I assume somebody... I'll give you an example. I've had a, and I won't name and shame, but I've known people for a while who I sort of would never have assumed that they actually harboured quite overt racist convictions because they don't share them freely, but sometimes they just come out. You know, I didn't. But then on the other hand, you know, I've known people who've utterly exceeded my expectations of them in terms of their ability to behave altruistically. And that's in the context of personal, you know, relationships where I interact with the person regularly. It it becomes even more difficult when, um, you know, you're looking at someone who's a national figure who's giving you a very crafted persona and you're experiencing that persona through a number of very sort of artificial lenses of, like, the media and what have you. You know, I don't, I don't know what's in Joe Biden's soul. I don't know what's in Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren's soul, for that matter. <laughs> um, you can judge people by what they've done. Um, and there's certainly a certain amount in Biden's record that's much more conservative than I would like. There's also some good stuff in there. He's always been quite solid on unions for instance. So it's a bit of a mix. Um, Rather than sort of have this um, be an analysis of, like, looking deeply into Biden's eyes, um, I think people don't just level it at Biden. They level it at the Democrats writ large, or, like, quote-unquote corporatist Democrats, which is, like, all of the Democrats except Sanders and maybe, on a good day, AOC and Warren. Maybe. Right? Um... So basically, 98% of um, elected Democrats. Now, I want to split this into two things. Do Democrats genuinely try and pass egalitarian policy? And I say egalitarian, not socialist here. I think most Democrats are sort of progressive liberals rather than socialists. That's certainly fair enough, right? Um, Even Sanders, to me, it sometimes reads as more of a progressive liberal than a socialist, um, and that's another story. Um, but progressive liberals are usually quite egalitarian, so they're not going to sort of 
fundamentally remove the market economy, but do they want higher wages, better working conditions? Do they want a more equal society? I think by and large they do. I don't, I don't think it's fake. I don't think they're just lying to us all the time. Now, I think the issue of whether or not that's what they're trying to achieve is quite separate from the issue of how effective they've been in realising it. Because certainly at the federal level, we only get these, with the Republican Party being what it is, meaning it will, if it has the opportunity to block any sort of egalitarian reform, it will block it. We really need both the House, the Senate, the Presidency, and the Supreme Court. And we have not had that in my lifetime. There was a very brief window at the beginning of the Obama presidency where we had the ability to get some stuff passed. Some stuff was passed um, and then largely dismantled by the Supreme Court. Um, there may be an opportunity if Biden wins big for another such windows, but we're going to have a very hostile court which is incidentally why I'm pleased to see Biden kicking the can down the road on court packing. I think it's actually a really encouraging sign that he means to do some of this stuff, at least if he has the ability. But to the people who, um, I'm, I'm trying to like put it in their words so I'm not straw manning, but the people who say, but how can you expect people to trust the Democrats to really do this stuff when they never see the results? That's fair enough on one sense, in that we do have, at least on the national level, a very, very... This is another way in which America is exceptional, and not in a good way. We have a very sort of low, what you might call rate of legislative production. You know, what have we... Re in, in my lifetime, what have we really even... What big stuff has passed on the national level? Uh, some tax cuts when Republicans have been in charge? The Affordable Care Act under Obama... Okay. Um, then the rescue packages that passed in response to 08 and in response to COVID and exempting foreign policy stuff? That's really about it, right? That's just much, much lower than what you would expect from a comparable advanced democracy. Right. And I want to, I'm going to in a bit get into some of the reasons why I think that is. Um, and sort of what that says about it. Um, but, you know, when the Democrats do get those little windows, they do use them. And I think you get a much better look at what Democratic intentions are. Like, what, what, what does Joe Biden, what changes does he really want to see in the world? And I think, honestly, it looks a lot like his platform that he's running on. It's not as left-wing as me, but it's still a big improvement over existing institutions, I think you can see that much more clearly at the state and local level, where Democrats really can control all the branches of government and use them effectively. They can hold them down for a good long time, right? And so I'll just give the example of um, New York, in that New York has gone from a state in which we sort of had more moderate Republicans, we had a bunch of, like, quite conservative Democrats, we had Democrats who caucused with the Republicans for a little bit, which was weird, but they've all, I think all but one of those has now been voted out of office. Um, and what sort of changed is partisanship. The Democrats became much more uniform and, um, 
you know, all believing the same things, and the state just generally became more blue. And so now, I think, basically, Democrats hold almost every level of power in New York City and in New York State. And, by the way, these are not perfect Democrats. I think anyone who looks at the tail end of Bill de Blasio's um, administration of mayor will be hard-pressed to say (laughs) that this is something that has gone well on all fronts. Um, Cuomo, the governor, is is your type one corporatist Democrat. He is is (laughs) loathed. by the far left of the party for a variety of very legitimate reasons, right? Um, But, even with those very imperfect Democrats, what's been the result of uniform democratic control? Um, We've done a lot of really good stuff. Um, New York City now has universal pre-K. That's a really good reform. Um, We've raised the minimum wage. That's a really good reform. We've banned fracking. That's really good reform. Uh, we passed gay marriage a bit uh, significantly before the Obergefell decision. That's a really good reform. Now, uh, we have really... I mean, everyone gripes about the subway, but, like, having lived in a lot of other big cities, the New York, the New York subway's actually pretty good, comparatively. Right? So, you know, even with imperfect Democrats, who they have a lot of... As human beings, they have a lot of flaws, right? Um. You've got a lot of solid policies coming through that really assist the lives, lived experience of ordinary people. And you can go state by state, um, look at different examples. But on the state level, you do sort of see what... You you, you see Democrats actually having the ability to use power, which they haven't really had in our lifetime on the national level. And you sort of see what they want to do with it. And it's not full-blown socialism, certainly. It's not everything in Obama or Warren's platform. But when Democrats actually have power to shape policy, what do they use it for? They use it about for what they've been telling you they plan to use it for. Oh, final point about New York. Good stuff with immigrants. They have really taken immigrant rights seriously. Final point with that. Um, Now, let me be clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying democratic politicians are always completely honest or that they never, you know, there's never cases where they run on stuff that they don't really intend to do. And certainly there's always going to be a bit of a gap between political rhetoric and what people actually believe. What I'm rejecting is the alternative extreme, that Democrats are always and necessarily absolute hypocrites about what they're claiming. I think some people think they just don't believe a word of it, that they're all in their heart like Thatcherites, essentially, and I just don't see a lot of evidence that that is the case. Certainly they can be insincere. Certainly they can be hypocrites. But I think, well, to take the example of Trump, right? Trump right now is running on protecting pre-existing conditions, right? That's one of his big applause lines. While his administration is in court, and we're going to get a decision on this, I think a week after the election, is in court trying to take those protections away, right? It's just black and white hypocrisy. Um, Democrats certainly can be hypocrites, 
But I think that, like, absolute extreme hypocrisy that Trump's showing on that issue, I think some people imagine that that's all Democrats all the time. Um, and it just it just isn't. Um, when they have power, they do tend to use it for sort of, not socialism, certainly, but sort of liberal, progressive, egalitarian-ish, pluralist and tolerant-ish um, sorts of policies. And I am going to get to discussing why I think what are the sort of trends and forces that meant they haven't really been able to exercise power on the national level. But even looking at power on the national level, and even looking just at the issue of egalitarianism, which is the one the Democrats are most frequently charged with hypocrisy on, um, there actually is a pretty big difference um, in material outcomes between Republican and Democratic presidencies. Um, granting that Democrats have not been successful in pushing through big reforms, the, the sort of more small day-to-day -day decisions matter, and they add up. So if you look at uh, most empirical measures of inequality in the U.S., you'll see that it has been on the uh, increase for the past 40 years or so. Um, and you'll see, you know, the people at the bottom haven't really seen their wages raised since the frickin' 70s or something. And those at the top accrue more and more and more. And there's sort of various ways. There's something called the Gini coefficient in economics. There's, there's various measures you can have. But if you look at how that line on the graph has gone up, it hasn't gone up uniformly. It goes up very sharply under Republican presidencies. And then it either flatlines or starts to trend down again during democratic presidencies. So even in the absence of being able to pass big reforms, the sort of smaller day-to-day -day decisions do matter. Also, taxes on the affluent. I think a lot of people think Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or Obama will never do anything to sort of um, hurt the material bottom line of the, the, the oligarchs. Um, but actually, taxes on the most affluent tend to rise a little under democratic presidencies, not because of big reforms, but again, just the small day-to-day -day decisions sort of add up. Um, and then, of course, they tend to go down drastically under Republican presidencies. It's really the only uh, substantive policy reform today's Republican Party has, right, is cut taxes on the rich and corporations. That's sort of really all they're good for anymore. So even on the national level, and even on the front of equality, no, Democrats do use their power. It, it, I don't think it's the case that they're entirely insincere. They, they're often insincere. There's often local instances of politicians being insincere. And if you wanted me to do another episode just on times when I think uh, Democratic politicians have said stuff that's insincere, we could certainly put together a pretty big list of them. Um, but the idea that it's just pure black and white Trumpian hypocrisy all the way down, I don't think is really cashed out by a careful look at the data, although I grant you that that can be complex and um, uh, 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 convoluted. Um, and even on the examples people give where they say, oh, maybe they, they really are the same, there's no difference, 
Um, if anything, maybe the Republicans are better now. The one that always gets brought up is foreign policy. And I must admit, I had somewhat lazily bought into this, in that someone challenged me a while ago, and they said, OK, you're arguing that there really are these substantive differences between the parties. And it's, it's a fair challenge, and it's a good challenge. And they said to me, can you think of an area in which... Um, that it is true that there, there aren't really substantive differences between the party. Like, what do you think is the critics' strongest case? That's a good challenge, and I like that challenge. Um, but I didn't give a very good answer. I said, uh, foreign policy. Like, there has been a sort of bipartisan consensus in foreign policy. Um, you haven't seen sort of the project of American empire significantly challenged by either party, and that's maybe one issue I could say there's not that much of a difference. And then people say, well, actually, Trump's much more isolationist, so if you care about that, maybe you should be voting for, for, for Trump. And so I went away and I did my research on this. Um, and it's, at least in the last sort of couple of decades, it's not even remotely true. Um, so everyone sort of knows that Obama had his... Um, drone strike program for which he was rightly criticized at the time and i criticized the obama presidency a lot for that um but there's kind of been this idea that trump's wound it down and rhetorically i mean trump's foreign policy rhetoric is really freaking weird and that's like a whole other episode in itself um but we've kind of just taken Trump at his word there, which um, is probably something we should not be doing, right? Um, here's a remarkable fact I, I found researching this. There were more drone strikes, and there was greater loss of life from drone strikes in the first year of Trump's presidency than in the entire eight years of Obama's presidency. Isn't that, doesn't that just like not jive with this, the, the sort of stories we've been telling at all? But that's what the facts are. Um, and one of the reasons is, is Trump's also disabled the accountability mechanisms that Obama had. They don't report it really as much. It's much harder to work out what's going on. This is part of a broader pattern where we punish Democrats for their attempts at transparency. Um, and then just don't expect any transparency at all from uh, Republicans. But no, I think there's a lot to criticize Obama there for, by the way. Um, I think what Obama did is he used drones as a sort of way of maintaining certain vectors of American power without really wanting to commit American troops. That's a dubious project in its own right. And then what, sort of what he did towards the end of his presidency is he tried to put a number of accountability, he tried to sort of tie his successor's hands a little bit so that whoever got that program next couldn't just run wild with it. But he didn't dismantle the program, he just put some, like, policies in place around it. And then, of course, what Trump does is he goes, I'm going to completely ignore those policies or I'm going to get rid of them. And Trump has gotten rid of a lot of the sorts of um, legal restraints around the drone program and just went wild with it. And the, the beginning of the Trump presidency saw a huge surge in drone attacks. God even knows what's going on in terms of surveillance with the Trump presidency. Nothing good, I, I want. But, I, I, like, I'd, just because I am so much a part of left discourse, I had sort of naively bought into this idea that there's no difference on foreign policy. And there actually is. Now, I think 
the the way in which I think both positions there are unacceptable. I'm, I'm really not convinced by the wisdom of the drone program at all, but it's not true to say that there is no difference. So those are the first two big morally consequentialist arguments, that there's no difference either in their policy or that there's no difference in terms of actual willingness to pursue that policy. And I sort of wanted to run both of those arguments to the point of exhaustion. Um, Now, in doing those, we have seen that even if Democrats are both nominally and substantively committed to at least a sort of modest egalitarianism, um, they have often lacked the power to pursue it. And that, I think, is really interesting and important for this debate. Just before I get to it, there's one last consequentialist argument that I think people sort of jump to, and it's not what people lead with, but they jump to it. Um that, if it were true, would be very consequential. And that's the idea that, that, that someone might say, yeah, okay, there are differences, but I still, the Democratic Party is sort of nowhere near as progressive as I would want it to be. And how are, how are we ever going to get it to be as progressive as I would want it to be if we continue supporting them with our votes. So, I think in looking at this, the best way to assess it is to say, what in a positive sense is this argument trying to establish, and what are the sort of hurdles it would have to to clear in order to be effective? So, this is, I think, the positive sense of what that argument is trying to establish. Withholding votes from the Democratic Party until they become more left-wing is a good strategy for making them more left-wing, right? I think that that's the case at its simplest. Um, This is a sort of long-term strategic view that um, if we want the Democratic Party to sort of look more like Bernie Sanders' platform, the best way to get there it's to withhold our votes until it does. That's, I sort of think, what the claim is at its simplest. And here's, here's the, the barrier I think it has to pass, because I think that claim is sometimes debated on its own, um, but it has to be considered surely also in conjunction with the claim about both parties being the same. If there is a material difference between the parties and that we can be fairly confident in big divergences in people's welfare, depending on who wins. So to take the case of the 800,000 DACA recipients, right? We have to say that the good that will come from pulling the party substantively more to the left outweighs the good that will come from just electing Democrats, right? I think that's the sort of missing step. So in other words, it is worth sacrificing. I think this is what the argument has to show. It is worth sacrificing the 800,000 DACA recipients, and God only knows how much else, in order 
to get to a better place in the long run. We've got to go through a valley in order to get to a higher hill. Now, that might be true, and certainly if you start to talk about just how great it would be if we could really get a socialist platform enacted, that that does seem like a good enough thing that, you know, it, it would start to outweigh these more the, the, the more immediate harms that would come from a Republican presidency in order to get to these more long-run goods. As a moral consequentialist, I think I have to accept that argument in principle. Right? In principle, if us getting to whatever your vision of a sort of democratic socialist utopia is, and that it's as good as you say it's going to be, I think as a consequentialist, I do have to say, okay, sorry to people um, who are going to lose their DACA status, their jobs may be deported. You know, it's a very ugly consequentialist trade, but maybe that would be a trade worth making in theory. Now, I want to lay that out because I think people often aren't quite willing to bite that bullet. They're not willing to say all the people who are going to suffer, like really suffer, because of a Trump second term, you are collateral damage. I don't think people, and I think if you're going to be honest about it, that is what you're saying here. And I think there's a defensible, in theory, moral argument for that. But I think people don't want to sound that brutalist in their politics. So they, then they revert, they, they jump arguments and go, oh, but there isn't a real difference. Biden won't really protect the undocumented people. And then we're back on that track, right? Um, but I don't, I think that's what you have to be willing to say in that argument for that argument to make sense. Okay, so does it make sense? Um, in theory, but not in practice. Um, I've granted that if we could get to um, all of the wonderful things democratic socialism is expected to deliver to us by withholding votes and enduring a, a non-trivial amount of evil from Republican administrations in the, in the sort of interim, yeah, as a moral consequentialist, I have to grant that in theory. However... I think it is reasonable to ask, what is our perceived likelihood of success by making that our primary strategy? So it's not just how much good will come if it succeeds. We have to ask, is it likely to succeed? Now, the analogy um, I'm going to draw here might seem like a bit of a stretch, but here's ultimately why I reject this argument. And I think it, it kind of obviously reject it. Um, the analogy I'm going to make would be to John Stuart Mill's view on um, wars for the purpose of regi regime change. Bear with me on this. This will make sense. I say. I think. I hope. <laughs> um, I think this makes sense. But so check it out. John Stuart Mill's a utilitarian, right? He's a moral consequentialist. The greatest good for the greatest number. So if someone says, okay. We have this awful dictatorship, say Saddam Hussein, right, who's repressing his own people. I think at a minimum Saddam Hussein killed 100,000 of his own people in the 10 years before um, the invasion of Iraq. Um, wouldn't it be worth a certain amount of death and violence to stop that happening if we could intervene by invading his country, toppling that government? 
maybe, let's say, at a cost of 10,000 lives. And by doing so, prevent a 100,000 deaths through repression over the next decade. Aren't the morally consequentialist scales in our favour? Indeed, as a utilitarian, which I understand not everyone is, but as a utilitarian, aren't you kind of obligated to intervene for that more long-run good? Do you you see the analogy I'm drawing here? In that if we're willing to throw the 800,000 DACA recipients under the bus, at least in the short run, um, you know, maybe sh- shouldn't we be willing to do that if we're going to bring better lives to, to millions and millions through getting to this truly egalitarian place in the future? Now, a lot of people don't like utilitarianism's comfortability, shall we say, with such sort of brutalist exchanges, but I actually take them seriously in both cases, and I'm willing to answer as Mill answers. If that is really the choice facing us, then yes, we should go with the option that results in more good and less harm. And then the question Mill asks of foreign interventions, which is the one I'm asking, is a very simple one. He says, what's your perceived chance of success? Because he says, yeah, in theory, if we could go in and remove Saddam, with an amount of violence which is much lower than the amount of violence he's perpetrating on his own people as a matter of course, not only would that be permissible, it'd actually be, we'd actually be obligated to do it. We'd be monsters not to, right? The thing is, is that actually your expectation? And I would say in the case of Iraq, very clearly, the expectation is that that's not how it's going to go. And... There's various things you, you, you can look at. You can sort of look at history and other comparisons and so on. But it just is the case that regime change wars basically never work. Now, there are a few counterexamples. But if you think of all the different places the U.S. has gone into, sometimes hypocritically, sometimes I think actually sincerely, with the, the aim of getting rid of a monstrous dictator, it very rarely ends. In, in a sort of functioning democracy at the end of it. You know, really, the, the norm is that you, you precipitate a series of civil wars that end up as bad, if not worse than, the dictator. And I think that's what happened with Iraq, right? I, I do think, on the one hand, we have to grant, in theory, if, a certain amount of violence would probably be justified to get rid of Saddam Hussein. But the amount of people who've been killed in the Iraq war, I mean, it's a hypothetical, and the numbers are quite fuzzy, but I think by most accounts has been more than the amount that Saddam had killed through internal repressions. I've heard numbers between 100,000 and a quarter of a million for um, the numbers killed by Saddam's internal repressions. And then I've heard numbers... Christ ranging from like 200,000 to a million for the cost of the Iraq war. Um, I'm not expert enough to, to get into who's right there, but, but needless to say, the, the harm that's been done by that intervention was at least as great as the harm that it was supposed to, to prevent, right? It just didn't 
work, basically. If we could have made a functioning democracy, then we should have done it. But when we're making the decision, you know, should we now go and topple the Iranian regime, right, or whoever else, or North Korea or whoever else, right, I think we need to say, well, in theory, yes, but in practice, when we look at history, the, 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 the very strong trend seems to be that this basically never works and that it does more harm than good, right? Now, that's not to say that's an absolutely universal coverall. History's a guide, but it's no more than that. There might be a specific local instance where we, you know, the, the one that always gets cited is Rwanda. Maybe a sort of local intervention by, like, the UN or the African Union or something could have, at the cost of maybe a few hundred lives, saved hundreds of thousands. But then the onus really is on the people proposing to, to use violence to explain why it's different this time. Now, maybe, maybe it really is different sometimes. Maybe it really was different in the case of Rwanda. But you can't just say the good it will do outweighs the harm. You have to say how likely is that? And why do I think I'm going to beat the historical trend of this not working? Right? You see where I'm going with this now. So, I will grant you, in theory, the 800,000 DACA recipients and whoever else who will suffer under a Trump second term, all the people who will be denied health coverage, all the people who have their rights violated, all, all of it, right? That might be worth it to get to some utopian future. Um, but will that work? Will it be an effective strategy? We do the same thing we do with preventative or regime change war. And we say, well, what's the track record of this? And I always ask people, can you point to one example in history of this working? Because I can point to a lot of instances of it failing. People voting Nader in 2000 did not make Nader's policy the Democratic Party's policy. It gave us eight years of Bush with all sorts of harms and costs associated that, to that, and a lot of damage done by that presidency over and above the damage that might have been done by a democratic presidency. We did that, a lot of people did that with the Burn Your Bust movement in 2016. That did not give us... Um, you know, I think Biden has taken the left a bit more seriously this time. We've got some policy concessions. But it's not been the total capitulation that some people seemed to imagine it would be. Why is it going to be different this time? Now, there's another argument people say here. What about, like, the um, Clinton voters in um, 08 who didn't go through and um, vote for Obama? You know, they're, they're wrong for exactly the same reasons. <laughs> Whatever they were trying to accomplish there... Um, yeah, that, that was wrong. For, it, 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 whether someone on the centre does it to make the party more centrist or someone on the left does it to make the party more left-wing, this is withholding votes is not a good strategy. And I think just like preventative war, you have to say, if it fails every time it's tried, and it does a lot of harm most of the times it's tried, surely this is not a good idea. Or, or at the very least, maybe there's like a sort of Rwanda case where 
you, you've really shown, you've put an argument together of this is why it will work this time when it hasn't in the past. And I'm, I'm open to that argument, but I don't think anyone has put anything together like this. It is just asserted that this is the only way that, that we can pull the Democratic Party to the left. And what's kind of wild about that is the argument is made that this is the only way we can pull the party to the left, when not only does history show that never working, but there's a variety of other tools that we have available to us um, that, that have had some historical traction and certainly have not had the liabilities that that strategy for change has had. So... I gave you the example in the UK of two very sort of centrist parties, both marketing themselves to sort of the median voter. Well, that changed quite drastically, right? I'll, I'll not go into what changed on the right-wing side. That's a whole story. But what, what, what was it people abstaining from voting that got us from Blair to Corbyn? No, they essentially won a... They don't call it a primary, but they essentially won a primary, right? Now, there's sort of structural challenges to winning a primary, and um, obviously the way it works in the UK is quite different to the way it works in the US. But this is something we can and have done successfully. It's tough, but, you know, we elected AOC, there's been a bunch of others coming through, which I wholly support, by the way, we, you know, we absolutely should be in a district that, that's like 80% Democrats in the general election. We should be putting the most progressive person we can find up there, right? Like, I understand maybe in a swing district there might be some utility to going with a more moderate person. But if the district's always going to vote Democrat, yeah, let's get someone who's really going to fight for our interests there. I'm 100% for that, and I've spent a certain amount of my career um, working for that as well. Um, the, the next thing is people who, who sort of have the sort of um, view that we have to withhold our votes also have the view that, like, really what matters is social movements and protest movements and campaigning and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, it does. That stuff matters. And I think there's a false dichotomy offered that we have to choose one or the, the, the other. There's certainly limitations to what can be achieved through electoral systems, though as, as I've been stressing in the past hour they matter and their, their, their outcomes are consequential um but also you often get stuff through protest movements and organizing and so on that you wouldn't have got through electoral systems alone it's not an either or and there's all sorts of sort of activism and so on that we can do that that can and has pulled centrist political parties to the left now people sort of say but, but, like, that's all empty without the threat of withholding your vote. And I just, weirdly, I think that's way too pessimistic, pessimistic on, on activism. So you're saying activism's worthless? Like, no, come on. Activism makes a difference. Voting makes a difference. And we are in no way forced to choose between them. So, those are various lines of argument. And I can hear people sort of wanting to jump out there and sort of wanting to bring other stuff in. So let's, let's move to the other lines of argument. But I think basically the lines of consequentialist argument fail. 
I think there is a difference between the parties, both in theory and practice. And I think the idea of like the the withholding your vote is an effective strategy to change. There are history just shows us that we should be very cautious about that, especially given that it carries significant costs, and especially given there are other tools on the table, imperfect tools, tools that don't guarantee a result, but tools that I think are sort of estimated chance of success with are greater. I honestly think if Bernie or Warren had done some things differently in their campaign in the primary, they could have won it. I think it's always, there are always going to be challenges to running that sort of campaign, and maybe there's barriers Bernie faced that perhaps uh, you know, sort of more centrist Democrats wouldn't. But I think there's a world he could have won it. It's not a, it's not a foregone conclusion. Um, and that's, that's got to be the way to go. Surely, surely. But I want to circle back to what I said earlier, which is I can hear someone say, I mean, okay, there is a difference. That, that seems pretty clear from international comparisons and everything you've cited. And sure, I guess maybe you can point to instances of Democrats doing good stuff. And yeah, this like withholding our vote thing, um, it's just an assertion. People say the Democratic Party will never change if we keep giving them our votes. But if you just flip that the other way. What you're asserting is that withholding them is an effective strategy to change. There's, there's, and I don't mean to be so blunt about this, but there is just very little evidence that that is the case. Very little evidence, right? But people will say, but like, look, things just don't change. You just said it yourself. We have a very low rate of legislative production. We really struggle to get even the most basic stuff, like why is the national minimum wage still 7.25, right? We really struggle to convert democratic preferences of the majority of the electorate into legislation in the country. And surely this just shows a problem with big scare quotes, the system that cannot be solved within the system and that we need to opt out of the system in order to change, right? Even if I agree with you that, you know, whatever, like surely something's broken here. And I agree. And I think there's, there's three areas that we can talk about in this respect. So I'm going to run through the areas quickly and like what my sort of current state of thinking in them is. And then I'm going to ask, sort of given that analysis, what does that say about how we should vote in 2020? So let's do, the first one is money and politics. Let's start with that, right? This is a big bugbear for like a lot of the, so I'm thinking of something like the Young Turks, who are sort of very pro-Sanders new media platform. Um... I think almost comically pro-Sanders at this point, where, you, you, I mean, I guess they would say this themselves, it's, uh, it's commentary, not objective news. Um, but they've been going on about money and politics for a good amount of time now, and correctly so. I actually don't have much to say to the left on this one. Um, I think the issue of money and politics is a good instance of how, like, bad ideas create bad outcomes, right? Like, you know, this is a perfect example of, like, how doing political philosophy wrong creates needless suffering in the world. 
it, it is a really clear instance of like why the stuff I talk about on this podcast matters. Um, I mean, there's a few really just bad ideas at the heart of what we've done to our political system in this country. So the, the case that gets cited here is Citizens United. This is actually something that's been coming, it's part of the modern era, but it's been coming for a little bit longer than that. The absolute foundational case here is uh, Buckley versus Vallejo, which I think I'm going to do an entire episode on at one point, because it, it's a fascinating and fascinatingly bad Supreme Court opinion that lays the groundwork for what was sort of crystallized in Citizens United. But the money in politics thing is about a generation of, of right-wing jurisprudence on this. It's sort of been creeping up on us for a while. And what Berkeley versus Vallejo did is, this is really complicated, but there's three elements I'll just call out, all of which me, seem to me to be just like obviously flawed ideas. The first is this is where this money equals speech thing comes in. So the idea is uh, we have the First Amendment, the government can't prohibit speech. That seems clear enough. But it clearly has a range of powers to do with, like, commercial transactions, and there's various limits on how people can spend their money in the name of the public good, right? Um, I don't think we think people can just buy any... You, know, you can't just buy a contract on someone's life, for instance. Now... That seems sensible. Um, but then, of course, you get this right-wing idea that, that actually speak, money is just a form of speech. And the same protections that apply to my political speech should apply to my political spending. Um, I think just on the face of it, most people just... just um, think, see an obvious problem with that. Um, the other, of course, is corporate personhood. Um, that's something that goes to a few other cases, but that gets brought in here. The idea that corporations can have political preferences, and those preferences deserve the same sorts of protections that individuals have. That seems pretty fishy to me. It is also a, a contradiction from people who want to sort of just say, oh, the, the free market economy is all just individuals coming together and that corporations are just collections of individuals, except now you've just said that they have personhood and that they can have political preferences, and according to other Supreme Court cases, that they can have religious views as well. So, so that, that just doesn't hang together as a coherent theory of persons and of the structure of society. And especially if you combine it with the money equals speech thing, corporations can have political views which are protected, and spending money on them is part of that speech, right? That's really weird. Um, and then finally, um, Zephyr Teachout calls our attention to this in her work on corruption. The, the, the meaning of corruption changed it. And what happens in Buckley is they reinvent the term and they say corruption is only quid pro quo corruption. So in other words, it's only corruption from a legal sense um, if I say, here's a million dollars if you vote that way. And the politician says, I accept your million dollars. And as a consequence of you giving it to me, I will vote this way. However, 
There's nothing wrong with just giving a politician a million dollars because you like their views, and there's nothing wrong with a politician taking certain stances and voting in particular ways because they know it will increase their fundraising. It's only when there's a direct, to use their word, quid pro quo, an exchange, right? Um, Now, by the way, this actually has no precedent in corruption law. It's not in the Constitution. It's not something that was established by prior Supreme Court decisions. It's not coming up from the lower courts. Um, But people have just acted like quid pro quo because it's in Latin or something, has this huge history behind it. Um... No, it was just an invented for the, the occasion distinction. I think it's obviously inadequate, right? It, it's a bit like, you know, that Rick and Morty bit where they're like, that's just slavery with extra steps. If you're saying, okay, it's not a quid pro quo, but um, politicians can raise unlimited money, and there's nothing wrong with them taking positions that they know will get them more money, and there's nothing wrong with people giving the unlimited amounts of money, making clear that they'll only give it to politicians who've... It, it's just corruption with more steps, right? Um, and I think it's had a pretty poisonous effect on our politics. I think on the conservative side, it's locked the Republicans in into sort of a dogmatic... Randian libertarianism, where really the, the only substantive policy with which they can conceive is deregulation and tax cuts. That that is just the platform now, and I think yes, on on the left, it has meant that um, you know certain parts of the Democratic Party have been more reluctant to embrace sort of progressive reforms. So the example with Joe Biden would be him having to sort of be dragged kicking and screaming on bankruptcy reform, which he has he has done now, but he's, I'm not, his track record's eh, pretty meh on that, right? Um, so, yeah, money in politics is based on some really... I'll be more charitable than the word I was going to use. Uh, not philosophically substantiated ideas, not legally substantiated ideas, um, and it's had very, very bad effects on our politics. The the only two notes of caution I'll throw into that narrative is I think people who, who are really sort of angry about money in politics, as they, they should be, um, can sometimes totalise it, and they can sometimes say this is the sort of like the Fonzette origa, the problem in the first place. This is the root cause of everything that's wrong with American democracy, and I think that isn't true. Like there's lots of other th- there's lots of other things as it happens that are wrong with American democracy, but like it, it, it pulls everything worse. If things were like thirty percent bad before money in politics, it, it makes them forty percent bad. It definitely pulls things um, in the wrong way. Um, but I don't think all of our problems would be solved if we could just overturn Citizens United, but that would be a good thing. The other thing I'll say is it doesn't prove what I think a lot of people want it to prove, which is that both parties are the same and that they're all just in the pockets of big donors. That's not quite right either, um, because one fundraising isn't the only incentive politicians respond to. And two, um, different groups fund the Democrats and Republicans, 
and as a result, they have different agendas. So, I mean, there's actually some respects in which the influence of money in politics pulls Democrats to the left, because most of, say, like Joe Biden's money isn't actually coming from big corporations. Now, that might have been true some period ago, um, when big corporate money was more bipartisan. Increasingly, it's just flowing to Republicans in the last few cycles. Most of Joe Biden's campaign war chest just comes from, like, not quite the $20 donations that maybe Sanders was riding on, but sort of people who are very heavily politically invested and are maybe sort of middle-class liberals who can give money. And those people are hold a number of very left-wing views. You know, there's a lot of people who are, like, lawyers or, like stuff like that, who are very personally liberal, and they don't like the Democratic Party being wishy-washy on stuff, and they'll donate to people whose, whose beliefs reflect that. The other thing, and this is a bit more of a darker story, is there's actually reasons why the power of big money um, makes the Democratic Party more willing, more in support of regulations on corporate power than it would have been otherwise. Um, that might sound a little bit counterintuitive, um, but um, let me run through it this way. The, the, the main way we enforce corporate accountability in America is usually through lawsuits, right? If a corporation's been doing something it shouldn't be doing to its workers or the environment, what you'll often get, instead of the government coming in and shutting them down, is you'll get like a class action lawsuit where, say, all of the people who got pollution dumped in their backyard or all of the workers who were underpaid um, sort of all signed together and there's sort of a lawsuit on their behalf. The corporation has to pay a big fine and then that money is split up amongst the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the people who were part of that class action. This actually... Um, this actually happened to my wife a while ago. She'd been part of a class action with a previous employer, which I think she'd completely forgotten about, because like, once you sign up for class action, you don't have to like, show up to court or anything. Um, and she got like a couple of grand. Um, I'll, I'll forego the employer's name, but a couple of grand in like bank wages that the, the, the employer had like been illegally withholding. And this sort of stuff happens all the time in America. Now, whether or not that sort of system of lawsuits is the best way to, like, regulate corporate behavior is its own question. Um, but what you have is you have two huge industries that have been built up on the back of that. Every big corporation has to pay a huge amount in legal fees, sometimes in-house, but there's just firms that handle this for them, so that when they get sued, because they will get sued, they have, you know, the the best lawyers in court to defend them. But equally, on the other side, there's, there's a huge industry representing plaintiffs, right? Now, where do you think those two industries make their political contributions to? Unlike other industries, people never tire of pointing out that, like, um, you know, like, some big corporations donate to both sides of the aisle. In this case the people representing the corporations in court, and this is a multi... I think this is a trillion-dollar industry or something, by the way. This isn't peanuts. Um, the people representing corporations donate almost exclusively to Republicans, and the sort of trial lawyers' associations representing plaintiffs, they donate to Democrats. Fairly obviously, right? And it actually locks in this mechanic where um, Republicans want to just strip and gut 
and make meaningless any laws constraining corporate behavior because those laws if they they have no content then you know that will further protect corporations from lawsuits and if i'm someone representing corporations in court i want those laws to be weak so that i can win my cases and that's how i'm going to donate politically but conversely there's a huge industry on the other side and they donate to democrats and so it's weird it, it actually locks in this thing where where republicans don't want any regulation at all but democrats are actually quite pro regulating corporations because that's where the, their money is so that was a bit of a long story but do you see how we can say money in politics is a terrible idea in theory and it generally has bad results in practice but it does not entail that both parties are the same and it does not entail that to use a sort of much used phrase both parties are quote-unquote pro-corporate there's lots of different interests and incentives in the economy and they work on the parties in different ways so i did just want to get that proviso in because i think people go from point a to point b way too quickly on that one and if anything to my mind like the money in politics thing makes the imperative of sort of voting quote-unquote within the system end quote even stronger because you know why do we have money in politics because of buckley versus vallejo because of blah 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 because of citizens united um decisions given to us by a partisan majority on the supreme court because of justices are there who are there because republicans won presidential elections and senate elections um and you know citizens united was a 5-4 decision if hillary clinton had won in 2016 and been able to fill the open seat then we would have a supreme court with the votes to overturn citizens united both hillary clinton and um biden have been explicit on this idea that elect me and i will put people on the court who will overturn citizens united and people jump back to this they're not the same thing and saying oh but won't they really put like federalist society people on won't they renege on those promises no i will bet my life that joe biden will not be putting federalist society people on the court like it's just not in his interests it's not in his party's interests they, they won't do it okay um and it's weird isn't it like like the people who got really upset about money in politics again legitimately they went with it they're so adverse to the idea that voting might make a difference that they went this utterly different route and thought the way to get around that was to pass a constitutional amendment which is way more difficult to do than just like winning a presidential election and also like dubiously less effective you can pass an amendment saying yeah the the the, the government can um restrain money in elections but unless you have a government that's willing to pass those sorts of laws in other words a democratic government it doesn't make any difference and also just having it doesn't mean the supreme court can't reinterpret it in in various ways down the future like the 14th amendment was meant to protect freed slaves and now it's being used to overturn 
affirmative action programs, right? Like, power begets power, right? Like, at a certain level, you have to just be comfortable with the idea that we are, we are trying to seize the levers of the state, right? Like, you can't be in political analysis and discourse and just assume that that stuff doesn't matter. It does. So that's where I'm at with money and politics. It's terrible in theory, it's terrible in practice, but it doesn't necessarily entail that both parties are the same. And if anything, it provides yet another reason why someone concerned about that would vote Democrat in presidential elections. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is the relative um, virtues or lack thereof of a two-party system. And I think a lot of the sort of debates come back to this, and a lot of the sort of I-don't-want-to-vote stuff comes from a place of disliking the two-party system. Um, yeah, um, I think that there's, there's a lot of stuff to be said for a multi-party system. I think generally countries with multi-party systems do tend to see better outcomes, higher public trust, a sort of more, more progressive legislation, um, I will say it's not foolproof, so, like, Italy has a multi-party system with proportional representation. That, that hasn't necessarily checked the rise of the far right there. Um, Israel has proportional representation. So just having a multi-party system doesn't guarantee you good results, um, but I think there are some reasons to prefer it overall. I think that's the sort of big-picture view. So, so that's sort of where I'm at with these sorts of debates about a two-party versus a multi-party system. Now, I will say there's a huge amount of literature and stuff like comparative government on these questions, and it's not straightforward, and it's contested and debated, and... I don't really pretend to be an expert on any of that. Um, I'm sort of familiar with it, but it's not my field. It's not something I'm confident enough to really get into and say, this person here is definitively uh, right. So I'm just giving you where I'm at with my thinking on that, which is that I think multi-party systems probably win on points, but there's advantages and disadvantages to both, and it's complicated, and we shouldn't assume that, like, the two-party system is the root of all ills in America. I think that's my view. Now, I go through all of that because I think the way the question of a two-party system gets brought up in this debate about whether or not leftists should vote is kind of weird and kind of missing the point in a lot of ways. In a, I think a lot of people talk about America needs to move to a multi-party system, and what they seem to be thinking of as the great benefit of a multi-party system is that they'd be able to cast a ballot for a candidate who more closely aligns with their views. So just say for leftists, you know, we agree with Biden about unions and the minimum wage, um, but we don't agree with him about a public option versus Medicare for all. And you go down the list and say you're, you're only 
4 out of 10 agreement with Biden, and I would assume 0 out of 10 agreement with Trump. Well, under a multi-party system, maybe you'd get someone who, you know, was 7 or 8 out of 10 in terms of, like, perfect issue alignment with you. So, therefore, a multi-party system's better, right? Well, does anyone else, like, see that that's sort of, like, half a thought? So, for one thing, there are plenty of opportunities in America to cast a ballot for someone who closely correlates with your views. We have a lot of elections in America. Like, I've just filled in my ballot for Florida, and my God, there was like 17 different <laughs> questions on it. So to just take the case of this cycle on the national level, um, I thought we had a pretty good selection of candidates for the Democratic primary. I mean, I'm not sure they were all you know, equally viable, but there definitely was, I think most people felt like there was a candidate there who had pretty close issue realign, alignment with them. I think certainly most of the Bernie and Warren voters, if you sort of went down the list, you, you know, you're agreeing with them on the issues like 90% of the time or something. So if what you want is to be able to cast a ballot for someone whose views reflect yours, you already have that in the sort of weird two-tier system we have, where we have primaries and generals. Um, but surely that's not the point, right? Because you can say, well, yeah, sure, I can vote for Bernie or Warren, but they didn't win, and it's not going to affect policy. Well, exactly. The point is to affect policy. And here's what I want to stress about the difference between um, a two-party and a multi-party system. Is that sort of, like, reluctance to compromise? The reluctance to, to cast a ballot for someone you only agree with half the time, or whatever it is. You know, compromise doesn't go away in a multi-party system. It just occurs at a different level. So, right now, someone like Joe Biden has to craft a platform that will appeal to all of the different groups that he's trying to activate. And you can just see him doing this in action, right? He did his joint policy meetings with Sanders. He moved to the left on uh, student loans. He moved to the left on some environmental stuff, which even though he won't call it the Green New Deal, I actually think is pretty good. Uh, he moved to the left on bankruptcy, um, his sort of historic feud with Warren, right? Um, but also... He has people in his coalition who either are sceptical of stuff like Medicare for All, or even if they'd support it themselves, they prioritise beating Trump. And, you know, they do not want him to take um, seemingly risky or radical strategies. They want him to be a safe alternative. So he has to sort of cater to them as well, right? And the result is kind of everyone's left a little bit unhappy, right? Like, that's the nature of compromise. And if Biden gets in, he'll have to compromise again in what he tries to push through legislatively. And, yeah, you, you will end up with something that does not reflect you 100%. That's certainly true. But then let's say you're in a multi-party system, and instead of the party having to find a compromise position, Everyone would vote for parties which more fully reflected them, say there were sort of two or three different left-wing parties, 
Um, well, what would happen then? You know, the people on the left would vote for the Greens or the Social Democrats or whoever. The sort of more sort of mainstream left would vote for presumably still a Joe Biden sort of figure, right? And then let's say, you know, the left gets 20% of the electorate, the sort of um, Biden-y centrist people, they get 30% of the electorate. Well, then those two parties will need to form a coalition to govern. And what'll happen? They'll compromise, right? So instead of compromise happening within a party, it's happening between parties. And what you will end up with is something that incorporates some of the sort of desires and aspirations of the different parts of the coalition. So you're never escaping compromise. Neither system gives you something that aligns with you 100%, and nor should it. A system in which your preferences are simply enacted into legislation 100% of the time is a dictatorship, not a democracy. No democracy can give you that. Now, there is a fair case to be made that the, na- that the compromise you would end up with under a multi-party system might be further to the left than the compromise that you would end up with under a two-party system. So in other words, if we weren't compromising at the level of the party of Biden having to put together a platform that appeals to all these different groups, if Biden got elected as the leader of one party and God knows Sanders or Warren or AOC or whoever got elected as the leader of the other party, and then those two leaders had to compromise, the compromise that comes from parties negotiating might, and I say might, overall have a more sort of progressive tilt to it. That's an abstract hypothetical, but I I can see that that would be true. But this issue of sort of dirty hands, this issue of sort of diluting the purity of your ideological vision, that would be the case in both systems. So if your concern is that you don't want to have to compromise your ideological vision at all, ever, then that's just not happening under any way democracy is practiced anywhere in the world. There's always going to be compromise in the system. Now, I think some people actually aren't thinking about it in terms of affecting outcomes like that. Because for me, as a moral consequentialist, what ultimately matters is the outcomes, what legislation results from this. I think some people really are locked into this thing that what matters is in the act of voting, does the person you cast a ballot for, you know, perfectly align with you, irrespective of outcomes. Now I'm going to come back to that position because that's what I think is really going on here. But if what you're concerned by is outcomes, then like, yeah, maybe a multi-party system would be a bit better, but the result would still be something that you didn't align with 100%. And I think that fact just needs to be recognised. Now, then people will say, okay, so you've granted that a multi-party system might be better. I'll certainly at least grant it has the possibility to be better. I don't rule that out, right? And then people will say something along the lines of, but... 
by participating in the two-party system, aren't we just propping it up? You know, it's never going to go away as long as everyone keeps voting for one of the main two parties. And that sounds so plausible. People just nod along. It's, as John Stuart Mill says, one of those pleasant falsehoods people repeat after each other until they pass into commonplace, but that all experience refutes. And this is a bit similar to the sort of idea before about pulling the party to the left, except on a structural level, I guess. It isn't that if if we want to bring an end to the two-party system, surely we have to stop voting for the two main parties. What could possibly be more logical than that? Um, Well, I think this is an example of a fallacy that occurs a lot of times in politics, and people don't quite notice that they're doing it, and it's not just on this issue, it's on all all, all sorts of things. Um, But you'd notice immediately if you applied the same reasoning in any domain other than politics. And the fallacy is something like this. The best way to bring about the system that I want is to act as if I am already in that system. Let me say that again. It's a fallacy that occurs any number of times in political thinking that the best way to change the system to the system that I want it to be is to act as if I am already in the system that I want it to be. So let's go through the case of two-party versus multi-party real quick. So the reason we have a two-party system in America is largely structural. The way we do elections heavily incentivizes people to vote for one of the main parties because we have what gets called a first-past-the-post voting system where the whole country is divided up into districts or states or what have you, and then the winner of each district um, gets their representative, right? Now, that's different, obviously, to a proportional representation system where, you know, if you get 40% of the votes, you get 40% of the, the seats in the legislature. And there's a number of other structural things, right, that lead us to that result. Now, here's the fallacy. The best way to get to the multi-party system isn't to change those structures, it's to vote as if you were in a multi-party system. So instead of focusing your efforts on reforming laws, election laws, and this, by the way, in the States usually has to be done on the state and local level, so that you have, say, ranked choice voting, or you have, as we do in New York, a system of ballot line voting, those are reforms that make third parties more more viable, right? Um, Instead of working for those reforms, we're going to act as if we already have them. So, you know, in a multi-party system, I'd see Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Greens, and I might think, well, the Greens um, are are, are sort of most likely, they, they most match my views, so I'll match for the Greens. I'll vote for the Greens. That's how you would behave in a multi-party system. And so the way to get to it in America is to just vote green, or to abstain, or to vote third party, or write in, or what have you, right? But that's just a non sequitur, um, because 
the thing that's keeping us locked in a two-party system is the structures, not by and large the voting behaviour. The structures of our system are pretty much designed so that a third-party vote, is, with, with vanishingly few exceptions, is pretty much just a wasted vote. As long as those structures are in place, that will be the same. So I think you see it much more clearly when you apply this sort of way of thinking to anything other than politics. So I said we might get outcomes that are better if we were in a multi-party system. I'm not absolutely sure of that, but I think that's probably true. Let's say you're doing an undergraduate degree, as I think probably many of my listeners are, and you think, you know, I would score better on my finals if I were doing a philosophy degree instead of a mathematics degree. I'm not very good at mathematics. I don't really know why I took it, you know, all these numbers and whatever. If I could just be, like, dealing with arguments and talking about Kant and Hume and stuff, I'd I'd be scoring a lot higher, right? Now, there's a structural element and a behavioural element. Which do you want to go for? The structural element is you have to change your major, right? Like, you you are, as part of the bureaucracy and administration, locked into this particular major, and if you want to be sitting those other finals, you need to find a way to change that. What would we think about someone who, instead of trying to change the structure, just started behaving as if they were within the structure which they wanted to be within? So, instead of trying to change their major, they went and they said, well, I'm going to go to the same exams, but when it asks me to solve these quadratic equations, I'm going to give an answer about the argument from infallibility. Would that be an effective way of getting the better test scores that you wanted? Clearly it wouldn't, right? And I tried this argument out on someone, and they said, what about if it was really hard or impossible to change your major, with the implication being it's really hard or impossible to change the structures we have that give us a two-party system. And I said, sure, no matter how hard it was, it still wouldn't make it a sensible thing to be doing to show up for a mathematics exam and give answers as if you were in a philosophy exam. It still wouldn't make sense. And I think... You know, you don't see it in politics, but no, <laughs> you know, uh, there's all sorts of structural stuff that we need to change in this country, and I'll get to that. But simply acting as if you're within the system that you want to be within is, is not a way of getting to it. If anything, it just leads to, like worse outcomes, in the same way as if you want to maximise your test results by sitting philosophy exams rather than mathematic exams, you know, basically the worst thing you can do is show up to the mathematics exam and answer it if it's a philosophy one. While you're locked into the system, you, you just have to give the maths answers the best crack that you can. Analogously, while we're in a two-party system, you have to just 
do the best you can within that system if you can't change the system. Although I think we can change the system. But either way, it doesn't work. So people say, oh, the two-party system will keep going as long as we're participating in it. I want to flip that around and say, what's the positive assertion that's being made there? Because that sounds kind of reasonable, doesn't it? Oh, the two-party system will keep going as long as we keep voting for the same two parties and everyone nods along. But let's flip it to the positive assertion. It's being asserted that abstaining from the two-party system will lead us to tr- is an effective strategy for transitioning us to a multi-party system. And... Again, this comes back to this thing I've been saying, where I think it is more respectful to just say that an idea is wrong. Abstaining from a two-party system is not an effective way of transitioning it to a multi-party system. But half of Americans don't vote as it is. That has not in any way set us on the road to transitioning to a multi-party system. It just hasn't. The way, historically, two-party systems have transitioned to multi-party systems, and vice versa, is usually to do with changing structures. (sighs) Okay, so, that's my views on two-party versus multi-party, but also on how that debate impacts this perennial debate on should leftists vote. So, alright, okay, let's shake it off. Everyone still with me here? Um, I, I commend people who are really locked into this position if they've made it thus far with me, by the way. Um, how are we all doing? This is, this is feeling like a long episode here. Um, and I'm talking quite off the cuff for this one. So let's uh, shake it out, take a break, get a cup of coffee, regroup in 15. Let's do that. Um, well, just pause the thing. I'm not going to leave a 15-minute gap. But ooh, how are we all doing? We've covered a lot of pretty heavy, meaty stuff there, right? Okay. Final thing I think we have to talk about when we sort of talk about structures in American politics is just that um, structures. It's the way our constitutional order and the way that we do elections is set up. And this is where I think there's been a profound failure of the Democratic Party as an institution to really explain this to its voters. Um, This is one, you know, people who are on the sort of left-left side of this might be feeling a bit put upon at this point, but this is one where where the the bulk of the blame, I think, goes to the Institutional Democratic Party and its leadership and the left, um, insofar as it can be faulted. It can only be faulted in paying these sorts of structural issues and equivalent sort of lack of interest. Um, Because let's go back to something I said before. I said there is a clear difference between the parties, and I don't think it's merely a superficial difference. I think Democrats actually want to use their power to achieve a sort of more progressive and egalitarian society. Maybe not like an absolute socialist society, but, but they do want to do the sort of broad thrusts of what they're claiming to do. And I've said that voting matters. And it it is a fair question to say, well, you know, you gave some examples from New York, but it really just, on the national level, nothing really seems to be happening. I don't think that's quite true. You know, 
I said, you know, the, the dark is a great example. There are changes in the level of inequality and so on. But it is true that the Democrats promise a lot when they're running from election, and really the tiniest fraction of that turns into legislation. And I think it's quite understandable that absent any additional information, people sort of feel like they're being hustled by Democrats, essentially. I don't think that's sort of a crazy thought, and I think there's a missing piece there, which is the way our electoral systems and our constitutional systems operate by design to frustrate populist change, right? But Democrats have done a really poor job of explaining that. So in many ways, um, a sort of growing dissatisfaction with the party is a very understandable sort of consequence of that state of affairs. Well, we haven't seen big progressive change on the federal level in... Christ, I mean, if you discount the ACA, like, basically my lifetime? There's stuff that matters and there's stuff that's happened, but, but we have been really bad at running on a platform and then turning that platform into law. I think the piece that's missing there is all of our electoral structures in the modern age work to disadvantage the left. The Democrats have to win the national popular vote by about three percentage points in order to win the House of Representatives. There's, there's lots of years, um, 2012 is an example of this, where Democrats narrowly won the popular vote for the House, but Republicans claimed a majority of seats. So Obama, if, we, if the House was elected by popular vote, Obama would have been able to legislate in his second term. Right. Um, needless to say, the um, electoral college. This was debated for a while who it benefited, but I think it's increasingly clear that it benefits um, Republicans. You know, you wouldn't have had Bush in two thousand or Trump in sixteen if we had a national popular vote. And if Trump does win re-election, it will likely be in spite of losing the popular vote. We'll see how that prediction shakes out. And then the Senate, my God, the Senate, you need to win by something like 10 percentage points in successive elections. And so not only do you need to win multiple chambers all at the same time, you need to win them by more than the other party does. And then that's not to mention all of the other checks and balances and veto players our system has. Like, say you do win successive landslides so that you can control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Um, a Republican Supreme Court will still gut most of your legislation. What if um, Republican state governments actively try to um, interfere with the implementation of that legislation, as Republican governors did with the Affordable Care Act, right? And I think we get trapped in a really stale debate here, where... You know, the left says we need these big structural reforms like Medicare for all, like a $15 an hour minimum wage, like a Green New Deal. And we need them yesterday, dude, because people are suffering and people are hurting. As an object level sort of statement, a moral statement, but still, that is completely correct, right? Like, like that is a fine thing to say. Um, now... 
people who get frustrated with the left will say, but it's not just going to happen like that. Like, even say Bernie Sanders became president, we wouldn't get a tenth of his agenda through. I think most Bernie Sanders voters realise that, and, you know, even if we'd won this thing and beat Trump, a Sanders presidency, even with congressional majorities, even with the massive support of, like, activist movements and organising, would still find itself frustrated and impaired by all of the usual things that frustrate and impair a democratic presidency, a a Republican Supreme Court, I guarantee you would gut Medicare for all. And those people don't really care that much about the popular vote or who's protesting or anything like that, right? And so the sort of quote-unquote more establishment dem says, yeah, I agree with you, in theory all this stuff would be great, but you've not laid out any plan for how we're supposed to get there, and indeed a lot of what you're doing is actually quite counterproductive. And then the um, leftist doubles down and says, but we don't have time for this incrementalist waffling we don't where has your incrementalism gotten us over the past 30 years where has your intricate knowledge of how our political system works gotten us where has your pleas for moderation and civility and compromise gotten us they've gotten us nowhere they've gotten us absolutely nowhere and people are dying now and The establishment person says, but your moral anger about that doesn't change the structures of how American governance works, and so on and so forth, and that debate goes nowhere, right? And it just leads to increasing acrimony and distrust. And I think the conversation that we need to be having, and that, like I say, I largely blame the Institutional Democratic Party for us not having, is why are we accepting these structures in the first place, and why are we not explaining to voters that it's not a lack of will or political hypocrisy on the part of Democrats, primarily at least, that isn't leading us to get to these outcomes. It's that we're working within a system that's stacked against us at every turn, and part of achieving this sort of change is going to require change in that system. Why can't we have a national popular vote for president like every other sane country in the world does? Does any other country in the world have an upper chamber whose um, composition is as bizarre as the Senate? Imagine in the UK if the entire of London was represented, had the same representation, as some tiny constituency in the Midlands with 40,000 people in it. That's the level of disconnect we're dealing with with the Senate. Why is it that the Supreme Court has the extreme powers that it does? And more than that, why is the Supreme Court, I was going to say elected, why are the Supreme Court judges appointed by these two very counter-majoritarian institutions, the Senate and the Presidency. 
This is not a sensible and rational, productive way of running a government in the 21st century. It just isn't. (laughs) Now, I am pleased to see that the Democratic Party is seeming to realise that some of these structures have to change. And I will admit, this is my biggest frustration with the Institutional Democratic Party, is not that I think they're the same as Republicans, they're just obviously not, and that's a very American-centric view to think that. Nor even that I think they're all hypocrites or sold out to the highest bidders. might be true sometimes, but not universally. It's that they've cleaved to and venerated these sorts of institutional norms that not only are incredibly counter-progressive by design, but that the other side has shown absolutely no inclination to play by. Republicans only care about this stuff when it benefits them. I think that's become abundantly clear. And I have, yeah, this is like, a lot of people get really frustrated with the Democrats because they won't back Medicare for all. I sort of understand why they're doing that, actually. I can't understand why Dianne Feinstein gets up and says, yeah, I think the filibuster's a, a good practice and we should keep it in place. God's sake. Now, as I said, I I do think that is changing. I think increasingly um, the Democratic Party is pretty unified behind adding states to the Senate. I think that they've recognised the need for big reforms about money in politics and anti-corruption stuff since at least Citizens United. I think everyone on the party is pretty much on board with that. I mean, the big hurdle is going to be the court. Because whatever you do has to clear the Supreme Court. So I found it interesting that Biden and Harris have refused to rule out court packing. Now, refusing to rule out court packing is not the same as doing it, but it's been an interesting development, at least. So, and that is, I think, actually, probably the main reason why. You know, America has not been able to enact universal health care or European-style safety nets or stuff like that. It's, it's two things. It's like structures plus racism, essentially. And I've covered race a lot on the podcast. Um, but essentially the idea that white voters often don't want to support popular egalitarian reforms if they would also benefit black voters. So racism has been addition to being a great moral evil against people of colour, has also not really benefited most American white people. Um, But I think structures is a huge part of that story, of, of why we haven't made the country a more egalitarian and progressive place. And then I think that's a bigger cause, honestly, than not having a multi-party system, um, or even the role of money in politics, although I grant both of those things play play some role. Now, taking that as a big picture, I think I've provided a sort of coherent story there, it's taken me quite a while, I can go on, about why both parties really are different, 
And it is a meaningful difference, and it's not just, you know, paying lip service to ideals about why our votes do matter, but still, because of these sorts of trends and forces within American politics, um, progressive, egalitarian reforms have really, really struggled. Now, I think what people will sort of say back to that, and you can tell I've spent a while having this argument, right, because I already sort of know all the counter-arguments that are coming, is say, okay, Toby, but all you've essentially done is to provide a lot of waffle to say that the system isn't working and the system has to be changed. Yeah, I think I more or less agree with that summary. The system isn't working and the system has to be changed. Or, you know, I I could make it even more neutral. The system is imperfect and could stand to be improved. I could put it that way, in a sort of more positive case. And then they'd say, but surely just by, like, participating within that system, we're perpetuating it. I've tried to sort of already flesh out why I, I think that's a little bit of a fallacy. But they could say, well, look, don't Republicans and Democrats both sort of benefit from a system that locks in two parties? And yeah, in an ideal world, Democrats might want to do some egalitarian stuff, but as long as they keep getting elected, they don't really care. Um, And hence it follows somehow that we need to vote for Ralph Nader, right? Um, So I've worked in state-level politics for quite some time, and I don't think it's quite true to say that both parties support the system as it is. And specifically, I've worked on lobbying and advocacy campaigns for a number of issues pertaining to money in politics, passing reforms that make third-party candidacies more likely, and then sort of, um, I have been very vocal about this sort of structural stuff as well. And I'm going to try and just tell you what I think is happening with these sorts of reforms. And this story I'm about to tell you is just my personal reflections of having worked in this for a while. And it's not immediately going to be comforting to either the establishment side or the left side. But this is just actually what I think is happening. So, for the most part, I think a lot of these reforms are going to have to come from the state level. Often, stuff about, you know, how elections are done is handled at that level, not at the national level. So, for instance, I've been a part of a campaign for public financing of elections, which we've managed to get in New York City, um, but tried and almost succeeded, but somehow failed to get in New York State. And what that effectively does is it makes it easier for people to run. It gives you matching funds for small dollar donations. So it makes it easier for to run for people who might not have big corporate backers or be independently wealthy or something like that. It's a very good measure that counteracts the influence of money in politics and I think has led New York to being more progressive and to enacting more progressive reforms. It's a good measure. And I've worked on a bunch of stuff like this. And I think you can kind of lump it all together. Let's just sort of call it pro-democracy reforms. Stuff that means people can vote for 
more freely in terms of party choice, stuff that makes it easier for people to run without a huge amount of money, stuff that um, makes electoral outcomes more responsive to popular will. Let's just sort of lump all that together and call it pro-democracy reforms. Here's the basic state of play. If you have a Republican-controlled state or a state in which the Republicans even control part of it, you will never get any of that. Zero zilch nada. If you have a democratic-controlled state, you will sometimes get some of it. Sometimes, like in New York City, where we have quite a lot of that, actually, you'll, you'll do quite well with it. And then sometimes you'll just kind of be in this, like, morass where it feels like you have the votes to pass this. Everyone sort of will agree to it in theory. And then it just kind of won't. And, and so what, what's going on there? I think sort of what's happening there is that Republicans have unified incentives and Democrats have very mixed incentives when it comes to this stuff. So here's what I mean by that. Let's just take the public financing of election stuff. I think Democrats have really mixed incentives there because on the one hand, their interest as a party is clearly on the side of getting money out of politics. I think that clearly benefits Republicans overall, and I think most Democrats understand that. However, it's also possible, and they never quite say it, but when I've talked to electeds, and I think this is often what they're thinking, it might not benefit them on an individual level. So in other words, if I'm a state senator, do I really want to pass a reform that's going to make it more likely that I will draw out primary opponents, that will make it easier for people to primary me? And even if I dislike the current system and I sort of you know, know in theory my party is disadvantaged by the current state of play, do I, you know, I w wouldn't it be better if I can sort of coast to re-election every time rather than risk continually drawing primary challenges? They never quite say it, but I think that's that's the thought. There's a conflict of interest there. Now, that doesn't mean they're always going to side with the individual interest. Politicians want to have power, right? And even from just an individual level, wouldn't you rather be committee chairman or woman rather than ranking member? Right, So they have an interest in their party gaining and using power, but they also sort of have a more immediate interest in re-election, and those issues sort of pull them in different ways. I also think there is a genuinely ideological component to this. I'm not a complete cynic about our politicians. I think having worked with a bunch of them at the local level, they, they really run the gambit from complete... <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be nice about them just in case someone knows my work history and who I've worked with. But there are some genuinely ideological people in there, and there are some more cynical, shall we say, people in there. But I think at least some Democratic elected, some of the time, really do feel a genuine sense of outrage about some of the unfairnesses that are built into our democracy. They really dislike this stuff, right? 
You don't just suddenly lose your ideology when you become a politician, right? And then the, the final point that makes it sort of conflicting is there's always just other priorities in politics, right? And Democrats, I think, have a huge sort of, like, because of the way the system works to frustrate popular change. They have a huge backlog of things they want to pass that perhaps in another system would have been passed by now. And they only get these, like, quite short windows in which they can use it. Obama had these sort of two years at the beginning of his presidency. You know, are we going to use that to get health care for 20 million Americans? Or are we going to try and do some structural stuff that may or may not succeed? And that if it does bring good results, we'll bring them over a much longer time horizon. Surely we want to get people on health care now. And even on the state level, you know, if you're, even when Democrats have uniform control and sort of have it for long stretches, you know, say you're trying to pass a budget and you've got an extra 200 billion from it for education in there. And this is going to do genuinely great things for poor kids, right? And you've also got this public financing thing or ballot line voting thing on it. You know, you know you've got the votes for the education bit, but a lot of your caucus, a lot of the people whose votes you're going to need are like, ah. Oh, I don't know about this other thing, like, maybe if I vote for this, I'm going to need this other thing from you. And are you going to risk the whole thing failing, or are you going to take what's on the table? I think I, I, I pretty much know that situation's happened a few times. And I actually don't discount it completely. You know, it's easy to start tell stories of political corruption, but the, the truth is often both more mundane, but also much more complicated and sometimes hopeful and sometimes not than that. I find the idea of, like, I can get all this money going to poor kids, or am I going to jeopardise that by attaching this other thing to it that I know my members might not vote for? I, I empathise with people in that position. I do. I don't think that's an easy call. And I think this is this thing where this idea of, like, rational self-interest kind of just, like, bleeds into everything. And we assume that politicians are these sort of rational, egoic, self-interest maximizers, and they're always just promoting their own bottom line. And having worked with a lot of them, I'm here to tell you, they're just a lot more of a mess, <laughs> for good and ill. Yes, there's self-interest, and yes, there's cynicism, and there's hypocrisy. But there's also ideology, for good or ill. Be it for ill, the veneration of norms well past their sell-by date, or be it for good, a genuine desire to help the people at the bottom in their lives. They're driven by fear and courage, an outsized fear, an outsized courage. And so, when I say it's not all just rational self-interest, I'm not saying, like, I want to replace that assumption with some narrow definition of virtue. It's not that either. It, it's, it's people. And people are messy and complicated and multifaceted. And all of us have all of this stuff going on within us. 
at any one time, and politicians are just like the rest of us, just in very different circumstances and with very different incentives. And I think it's that model, essentially, that explains where the Democratic Party is now. I think there is a collective party interest in passing a lot of these reforms. Even something like um, ballot line voting or ranked choice voting, I think may actually on balance benefit the Democrats, because say you've got a Green Party voter, um, if you had ranked choice voting, maybe they vote Greens first, but Democrats number two or three or whatever. So Democrats might, depending on how it was set up, be able to pick up a few extra votes by allowing some of these reforms. So there is a collective party interest. I think sometimes there can be an individual interest that can cut against that. I think ideology matters, both the ideological sort of veneration of norms, but also I think many Democratic politicians do have a genuine ideological disgust for the um, ability of the super-rich to, to, to buy politicians. I think many of them are righteously outraged by this. And then finally, there's this idea of competing priorities. In any scenario, you only have so much time. You only have so much political capital. And I, I empathise, I do, with someone who wants to get the reform in now that will really affect real people's lives. That those people that put you up there to get done, rather than spend that political capital, and it's a lot of political capital we're going to have to spend, doing this structural stuff that no one really cares about. Now, here's the problem, though. The Democrats, it is part of their responsibility as a national party to make people care about it, to explain what needs to change in our system of governance such that it actually does better reflect the wishes of the electorate, right? And Democrats have failed at that, and the consequences of their failure have hurt them. The fact that the Democrats haven't explained how the system frustrates popular change at every level has led to an entirely predictable and to some degree understandable cynicism about the system and cynicism about the Democrats. Why should we listen to you? You know, you've been telling us this stuff forever and it just doesn't get done. Well, unless you explain to people what the real obstacles are, that cynicism is probably to some degree unavoidable. Nevertheless, if you would like to see any of this stuff done, you cannot have Republicans in any position of relevant power. Why? Because with Democrats, like I say, it's a mess. There's some factors that pull them towards it, there's some factors that pull them away from it. And you see that in practice, where Democrats have unified control of a state legislature. Like half the time you see some of these reforms coming in, or maybe like like halfway or some sort of compromise or some you know you know what i mean like like you you sort of see with Democrats what you'd expect to see out of people with conflicting incentives sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't, or maybe it happens like thirty percent of the way, something like that right like i say that it's actually happened like seventy percent of the way in New York we have really quite healthy structures in terms of you, uh, you know, the ability to vote for third parties, 
uh, campaign finance laws, stuff like that. So it can happen, but it doesn't happen uniformly or everywhere or the degree to which we might want it to. If Republicans are in a position to block it, though, they will. You will never, ever, 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 ever get any of this stuff if Republicans are in a position to stop it. Why? Because every one of those factors that I was explaining kind of pull different ways for Democrats, they all pull the exact same way for Republicans. Let's just go through them. Party interest. Overall, Republicans benefit by unlimited money in politics. You can tell that with the way the battle lines have been drawn over Citizens United. Um, there's this bill, HR on one, I think it's called, in the House, and it basically would undo a lot of Citizens United, as well as some voting rights stuff. Party line, every time. Every Democrat votes for it, no Republican does. I mean, maybe there's like one idiot I'm forgetting about, but it, it's party line, every single time. Um, same with the Supreme Court votes on this, same with the lower court votes on this, it's party line. Why? Because one party benefits from it and the other doesn't. Um, so there is a straightforward party interest for Republicans in maintaining all of this structural stuff as it is, or actively making it worse with gerrymandering and voter suppression and so on, right? Um, individual interest? Yep, same for Republicans and Democrats there. They don't want to do anything that's going to make it more likely that a primary challenge would be drawn on them. Republicans have to fear about that stuff too. They, they like the sort of cushion that an incumbency fundraising advantage gives them, right? Um, ideology. Whereas the Democrats generally have an ideological predisposition towards reform, accepting this sort of cult-like attachment they have to norms, Republicans have none of that. I mean, it is just at this point an unabashed defense of oligarchy, I think, right? Rich people deserve their riches. They can do whatever they want with them. And it is a violation. It is Stalinist. It's an absolute grotesque violation of our free speech to say that they can't drop $12 million on an election campaign. So, so Republican ideology is, is very just heavily pointed against any sort of reforms that might make our democracy more expansive. Indeed, it runs the other way. Republicans, not all the voters, I don't think, but all of their politicians, I think, genuinely believe that the government intervening in a way to make our society more egalitarian is an infringement of rights in the same way that, like, torturing someone is. Like, the government is there to protect rights, and what they mean by that is property rights. In the same way as, like, liberals don't think you should be able to vote for genocide or apartheid, the modern Republican Party does not think you should be able to vote for social democracy. They think that should be constitutionally impermissible, and they're working very hard to make it so. Right? So their ideology pulls them one way. Their self-interest, their party interest pulls them one way. And what about this, this final variable, this thing I talked about of competing priorities? You know, Democrats have been frustrated so long, they have this huge backlog of things they want to do. And it's like, okay, we've finally got this chance of power, what are we doing with it? I don't know, healthcare, education, infrastructure, environment. 
Republicans have none of that. Republicans do not have policy ideas anymore. It's, it's, what do we have? Deregulation and cut taxes on the rich. That is it, and there's all of these various attempts to sort of figure out, for instance, like what a pro-family policy agenda might look like, and that gets tolerated, but until it bumps up against, you know, serving the interests of the oligarchy, essentially, um, it gets thrown out. Republicans really, really, like, are not good at governance in the modern age. You see this, like, when they're in opposition under Obama in the House, they passed, like, a billion bills trying to repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Once they're in power, they just didn't have a clue what they wanted to put in its place. All they have is tax cuts, and so once they're done with that, there's no other big agenda items they have on the table other than continuing to rig the system in their own favour, continuing to tinker with the system and where it's structured and where the walls and barriers are, such that even when they're no longer in power, there's no danger of any sort of popular egalitarian reform. So for Republicans... It all points the same way. Their party interest is in preventing democratic reforms. So is their individual interest. So is their ideology. And so is what you might call the balance of priorities, right? So what falls out of that? Well, this is an answer that I fear neither side of the sort of centrist, mainstream Democrat, or the sort of lefty insurgent challenger will like very much. Um, But I think it's true. I think this is a true description of the world. If you want pro-democracy reforms, you might, and I say might, get them where you have unified democratic control. You will never get them if Republicans have a single hand on the levers of power. And where Republicans have unified control, they will actively make it worse. Now, like I say, that's not super confirming of either side's narrative, right? That's just sort of what I think is true. I think that's a true description of the world. Maybe that's that's the best I can do. That's where I'm at with my thinking. So, you know, people who say we just need to keep voting Democrat and just win the next fight and so on. And no, no, having Democrats in power is a necessary but not sufficient condition. On the other side, though, people who say systematic sort of structural reform is going to come through abstention. Well, that's not right either. Because if the analysis I've just done is correct, then absolutely the worst thing you can do for the cause of structural reform is allow Republicans to hold power at any level, particularly something big like the presidency. Actually, let me retract that. That's unfair. That's not the worst thing to do. The worst thing you can do is to vote Republican. Right? That is the worst thing you could do. Um, simply abstaining is better than actively voting Republican. However, 
as a minimum necessary condition, we are going to need Democrats in power. And that's a, that's a tough road I've just laid out, right? We need to assure uniform democratic control, and in addition to that, raise a great deal of consciousness about the changes that need to happen to our system, and mobilize people to support them, and... And just really like get a lot, get lucky, and have the stars align where the opportunities come up for this stuff to happen. Um, and I realise that's not an optimistic prognosis of our chances for success. Long is the road and hard the way that out of hell leads up to light. And I've said it before. All of the sorts of stuff we're trying to achieve on the progressive side of the aisle, even for sort of a progressive liberalism, much less a sort of radical social democratic socialism or something, are going to be an intergenerational effort, right? And I realize people don't really want to hear that, um, but that is the path. Um, Now, if there are alternate strategies for getting us there, I genuinely want to hear about them, right? Um, If there's some way we can just sort of do an end goal on the system and just somehow get around all of this structural stuff I've been talking about, then I am absolutely all ears. But a lot of the thinking I hear on this, which I think is well-intentioned, and does come from a desire to confront the very obvious injustices of our world, is at its root a deus ex machina. It is just an insert solution here. Talking abstractly about a revolution doesn't get us anywhere. Talking abstractly about the power of, like, organising and activism, I agree, but what is it that you think is going to happen? And I'm not being dismissive. I'm genuinely intrigued by, and open to, the idea of something like a Lutheran moment in the American Constitution. Um, I take this analogy from a conservative thinker, James Kurth, actually, who I had on the podcast, who said the American Constitution now is a bit like the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, in that everyone sort of understands it has systemic issues, that it's become very corrupt, but like the, the nature of the way the system is set up also precludes the possibility of it reforming itself, even in its own self-interest. and. Just like there were many antecedents of Martin Luther and his theses, you know, there was Savannarola, there was Jan Hus, there was all of these sort of like proto-Protestants who came along, but the time for the idea hadn't come yet. So there's been many people talking about reforming or whatever, the American Constitution, but the time of the idea hasn't come. So maybe in a generation or so, in a few generations, there will be a true Lutheran moment where someone just says enough is enough and that time it carries the day. I'm, I'm actually not dismissive of that and I find that a really interesting thought and I'm open to it. 
Um, but what comes next is not guaranteed to be liberal, social democratic. There's that. When you see a complete disintegration of the, the constitutional order, it's as likely to be driven by and produce nativism and authoritarianism and xenophobia, see the current constitutional crisis the UK's been going through for the last four years. And two, simply saying that that will come is not a plan, right? And I don't think the hope that that will come is a good reason to not take harm reduction strategies in the meantime. At a minimum, you would have to show me how taking those harm reduction strategies preclude the possibility of such a Lutheran moment. And I don't think that argument has been made convincingly. And, that, and there's a very heavy burden of proof here. You are asking me to throw under the bus the 800,000 DACA recipients. You are asking us to push past the point of no return on climate change. You are asking me to ensure that nothing gets done for the poorest in our society. Your argument has to be really strong to get me to do those things. And in place of a strong argument, what is offered is no argument at all. I'm offered an aspiration. I'm offered deus ex machina. I'm just told that me trying to make the world the best I can in the meantime will somehow get in the way of that. And that's just not convincing for me. So, so, that's sort of my response and my thoughts on and my analysis of all of the main issues that tend to get raised in this debate. And what I've sort of noticed, like I say, is when we have these debates, we jump. We jump around between all the different issues. But I think if you just exhaust one line of argument to its conclusion, they all actually end in a very similar picture. Now, here's, here's where I annoy you again, dear audience, after you having patiently listened to me for God only knows how long at this point, is I say, but I don't actually think any of those things that I've talked about are really what this debate is about. I don't think that is actually what is being contested here. Any of them. Because there's a sort of... There's an emotive element to this. There's a longing. There's a sort of pleading. Isn't there? On the other side. But what about... What about... If I'm not in a competitive state? What about if I'm... In New York? Or California? Or Nebraska's second district, and the outcome's a foregone conclusion, then surely I'm not obliged to vote. I, you know, I can accept everything you've just said. I understand there's harm avoidance. I understand the 800,000 DACA recipients, their lives matter, and I'm sort of obligated to care about them. I understand that that, that, that actually is a difference between the parties. I understand we're more likely to get the sort of structural reforms under Democrats, or at least it's possible. 
But come on, if I'm in California, do I really have to vote? Let me answer the question first, but then let me tell you what I think it reveals. To answer the question, um, as a moral consequentialist, it would be dishonest of me to say that the consequences of abstention in Florida and California are equivalent. Clearly, unfairly and unjustly, but clearly different votes around the country matter to different degrees. Um, I would still say a vote in a non-competitive state matters, and yes, you should vote. Um, here's, here's why. It matters less, um, but number one, your own estimation of what states are winnable or not may be mistaken. You may not have the best information, and there can always be surprises. So though it matters less, it doesn't matter, you know, it's not zero, right? Uh, number two, long-term trends matter. You could have told me um, a while ago that, like, voting in Texas was just a wasted vote. But, you know, over the long run, um, people showing up to vote, changing demographics have slowly brought that state to the point where it might, maybe, I'm skeptical about this, but maybe be reachable for Democrats. Uh, definitely that's the case in something like Arizona. Right. Um, finally, I think it matters about the perceived legitimacy of the system. I think obviously the result is the most important thing, but it is, it does matter that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. It does matter that Al Gore did. It does matter that Democrats have won the popular vote repeatedly for the House and the Senate and not controlled those chambers, because it sort of gives an argument and an impetus to change, right? It shows what that result might look like if the system could be reformed. Um, so the consequences of you voting in a non-competitive state are less. It would be dishonest to pretend otherwise. But that doesn't mean that there are no consequences. They're, they're more diffuse in their longer term. But no, you still you, you have a moral obligation to vote in California. To answer the question, yes, absolutely. Um, but what's, what's sort of behind that question, right? Is there something on the other side of that, isn't there? There's something of saying, look, I understand the consequentialist argument here. I get it. I'm not pretending. I understand Trump would be worse than Biden. And... I understand that even the sort of long-term good of, like, reform is a long and hard road, but it is best served by having Democrats in power. I understand all of that, but... Well, what follows that but? Because something does, right? Something like, I just really don't want to put my name next to Joe Biden on the ballot. Or Hillary Clinton. I just don't want to endorse, to like feel like I'm tied to, like I'm supporting the Democratic Party. Something like this, right? The Democratic Party does not represent who I am, and I do not want to take a political action that signals that that is who I am. Something like that, right? I just feel like I can't do it. I've, I've talked to people who say, I got into the voting booth and I'd been forcing myself there all day 
and I just didn't want to do it. And when it came right down to it, I just couldn't put my ex next to Hillary Clinton. I just couldn't do it. So that's sort of why I say, I think I've mapped out all of the sort of like, you know, policy, logical debates that that we have about this. And I've sort of tried to argue that what often happens is we jump. We jump from the parties being the same to not being able to trust the parties to um, do they really mean it to being locked into the system to sort of long-run reform and the various issues of, you know, money in politics, two-party versus multi-party system, uh, structures that perpetuate the system. We jump around all of those debates. But there's something underneath all of that which is about identity and feeling, feelings of who we are, who represents us, feelings of almost that identity being contaminated by the act of voting, right? Um, And that's, I think, true for both sides, actually. What I'm not saying is that people who urge you to vote are rational, and that people who don't want to vote are coming from a place of sort of emotion and ideology and identity and feeling. I think both sides are coming from a place of identity and emotion and ideology. Um, and, and when you get right down to it, it's, it's, it's not differences in logical, rational arguments that's really pushing people to one side or another. And it's not debates over the specifics of a policy platform that's making this debate that acrimonious. It's different ways of feeling about a particular act. And it's different ways of assigning feeling and assigning value and meaning to an act. That's what's actually going on here. Um, But can we adequately theorise that? I think we can, actually. And that's what I'm going to come to in part two, is what I think is actually underlaying this debate. And I think once we theorise that, we can see both why the conversation gets so frequently derailed, why the conversation is approached to such a degree of passion, why people take this so personally. And then finally, I think it does provide us with a framework for thinking about who is right. Um, Because I think even in areas of ideology and emotion and feeling and identity, the debates are more diffuse, but I think there's better and worse ways of thinking about them. So that is what I will be covering in part two.